Hey, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, we spoke to Edouard Mathieu, who is the head of data at a website you might have heard of called Our World in Data, or OID. OID finds the best available research on global problems like poverty, climate change, war, and pandemics. And then it presents that information through all kinds of interactive charts and really clear write-ups. It's just an amazing resource. And I think I speak for Luca when I say our modern data is one of our favorite websites in the whole world. So as you'll hear, OID gained an enormous new following during COVID when they unexpectedly became one of the only outlets in the world collecting together and communicating up-to-date figures on key measures of the pandemic for the world, like reported cases and uh, later on vaccination uptake. Now, Ed oversaw this effort. And so we spent the first part of the podcast just hearing what a wild story that was, as well as lessons Ed took from dealing with national and international agencies during a global crisis, and how those lessons might transfer to uh, global catastrophes. We also talk about uh, the idea of experimental long-termism, what Alden data has to do with EA, the challenge of collecting and communicating important data on AI and especially transformative AI, quantifying the value of just making the world slightly more sane and well-informed, uh, whether EA orgs could borrow OED's open source model, Ed's own career and advice for people who might want to work at a place like Award and Data, useful concepts for better data visualization, OED's future plans, and much more. As always, there are chapter markers in case you want to jump right to the parts of the conversation that interest you most. But without further ado, here's the episode. Ed, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, the first question we ask everyone is, is there a problem that you're stuck on right now? Uh, not necessarily stuck on, but one thing I've been thinking a lot about and working on recently is the question of how to introduce people to the topic of artificial intelligence in a, in an, in an o, OWID kind of way, uh, OWID standing for Award in Data, obviously. So it's, it's something we've been uh, thinking about and discussing for a long time now, for a few months. Uh, we want to start working on AI and publishing data on AI and obviously publishing articles on the topic. But it's also something where we're very much aware that um, it's not as easy to tackle as something like poverty or climate change. It's something that a lot of people have never heard about or heard little about or in a way that doesn't didn't really let them understand the topic. And so we're keen to think very carefully about how we want to introduce this. We can't really start like straight away with something like AI safety or AGI because that doesn't make any sense to most people. So we have to start much earlier into like just what is artificial intelligence? What do we mean by it? What is it currently doing uh, to society, to many kind of problems around us? And then to slowly get into like more weedy stuff about like what what could possibly happen if AI becomes even more intelligent? Could it reach human capacity? What would happen then? What are the different scenarios? And what do researchers think about this? And yeah, I, I tend to think about it as like uh, this idea of you know, a, a train that would go from like not knowing anything about AI to knowing everything that people mm. interested in AI safety know. Yeah. And like, it's a train that has to stop at very, like at, at many different stations. And we have to make sure that we remember to stop at each station because as people who learn a lot about the topic and who read a lot about it, we tend to forget what it's like to 
have never heard of it. And so again, yeah, we, we can't start straight away with weird concepts that don't make yeah. any sense to most people. Yeah. This gets called the curse of knowledge. Have you heard that phrase? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fact that, yeah, you, po you, you cannot possibly remember what it felt like to, to not know about this because now it's just like, it seems like common sense to you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Jumping the gun here, maybe like, uh, a little bit, but like, what does, you know, presenting AI and like our world and data style mean? Like, um, what kind of challenges come up when you're like trying to picture this, like in data, right? Which is like, in many ways, right? Like kind of a forward looking concept. Um, and yeah. that where many of the like points are maybe harder to illustrate using data. I think it's a tricky thing to define. And that's actually something that makes it hard for us to hire people to write because it's a very tricky thing to get right. It's this perfect balance of, not talking to people like they're idiots, like not start, like we're not talking to children. We're mostly talking to an audience of people who actually know academia and research a little bit, who are very interested in data, who are very knowledgeable about many topics, maybe not exactly this one, but about other things. Uh, so quite data savvy, quite research savvy in general, and very interested in learning in general. So we need to factor that in, but at the same time, we need to make sure that when we start writing an article, we don't leave out any kind of assumptions and that we write as clearly as possible, that all of the points I made are made extremely clearly. And this basically means that the, the writing style has to be extremely thought through. It has to be both very direct and impactful, but also very thorough in making everything extra clear. Um, and, and yeah, it's, it's something that's very difficult because Typically, uh, a journalism kind of style will be not rigorous enough. Uh, it will scheme over some things. It will exaggerate some points just to make it kind of catchy. And that's not something we want to do. We want to be like more academic than that. But in many ways, the typical academic writing style will be the opposite of that and will be way too rigorous, way too boring, way too precise and get like lost into methodology aspects that we don't want to, we, we don't want people to lose interest when they read. So. It's kind of a, a balance that's very hard to find and that's very hard to reach. And it's also, again, like quite hard to find people who mm. have the, the mix of backgrounds to have enough research knowledge to do that right, but also to write well for people who are not their colleagues in academia. Yeah, totally. And I look forward to chatting about this a lot more um, later on. I was thinking about a way to kind of start off this interview and COVID feels like a very obvious place to start. And I was wondering what question to ask. And I realized that I actually just don't have a very good picture at all of what goes on behind the scenes from firsthand data collection to the chart ending up on our and data. Like what does the pipeline look like? And just the, speaking to the most naive person about this. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's it's a complicated question also because it, it has varied over time and it varies depending on different kind of metrics. Um, the thing we did, initially and that we still do is to kind of aggregate data for from different sources uh, so data that other people in other institutions collect the best example is the confirmed cases and confirmed deaths that are collected by Johns Hopkins University and so what we do with that is basically we just take their data we make it uh, we first analyze a little bit by adding things like uh, a seven-day average, which is not something they do. They just have the very raw data. And so we add that on top to make it more comprehensible. We calculate things like the case fatality ratio by dividing deaths by cases, things like this. And then what we do as an extra step is to kind of make it pretty by basically putting that, like packaging that into 
our main thing right now, which is the data explorer, which is mm -hmm. this interface where people can select a bunch of countries, switch between metrics easily, um, toggle something to look at per capita metrics instead of uh, absolute numbers. And so we, we provide this interface so that people can more easily look at the data. Um, so that's the data we get from other sources. Mm. Then there's like the, 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 the part of the work that actually takes us the most time, which is the actual data collection. So for a bunch of metrics, we don't take the data from anywhere because no one is collecting it. We actually collect it ourselves. Uh, we started doing that quite early on in April of 2020. That's why I joined OWIDS in the first place. We started collecting data on testing because uh, we thought that we it, it a bit pretty clearly uh, pretty early on that cases numbers didn't really make much sense if you didn't know how much testing was being done. So we started collecting data about tests to get the positive rate and things like that. Um, and so this work means pretty much going every day to the website of 200 different countries and collecting the number. Um, and this is also something we've done in a much more visible way uh, almost a year later for the vaccination. So in late uh, 2020, in December, when vaccination started in the UK, we started collecting this data again, country by country, by pretty much every day, going to the website of all of these countries and looking at how, just how many vaccinations had been done the previous day. Um, and in terms of what this actually means, it, it means a bunch of things. Uh, right now, today, it's pretty much all automated. It's very easy because countries have either a bunch of open files like CSV files or they have APIs, everything is really clean. And even the countries that don't have very clean data, the WHO is providing regular updates that the governments give them. And so we, we get the, with the data from that, even from like poor countries. Um, the problem is that for a very long time, this wasn't at all like that. And for the first few months of both the testing and the vaccinations, uh, the data collection meant literally at first going to places like press releases and media articles and even Twitter and Facebook mm -hmm. to look at the posts uh, and the Whoa. tweets of like health ministers, for example, uh, like, I don't know, like a few days after the vaccination started, the the French minister of health would like just send out a tweet saying like, oh, we've vaccinated 2000 people. Right. And that yeah. was the only proof we ever had. <laughs> of that number like we didn't have any files any official press release and so the link in our data was just linked to the tweets and we would were like 2000 yeah. uh, literally by manual input um, and so for the first few months this was like extremely time consuming as you can imagine also very hard to clarify because some things you just don't really understand because maybe the prime minister is saying something slightly different from the health minister you don't really know who's right um, and so this is yeah this is extremely hard to do and extremely time consuming over time, these things have, you know, become better. And so uh, countries have started to publish data that's in a more, much more usable format. And so little by little, we've been able to automate uh, a lot of these countries. Um, now, the capacity we have to automate also depends a lot on just what countries make available. Mm. In, in an ideal case, an automation looks like a CSV file that you download every day and look at the latest number. In the worst possible cases, it's like, a weird dashboard that you can't possibly pass because there's no table or CSV file behind it. And so we literally have a script that opens a fake browser, loads the dashboard, knows exactly on the screen where the number is and collects that number for that day. Uh, and as you can imagine, that breaks all the time because maybe one day, I don't know, the developer decides to put the number on the left. And so now it doesn't work anymore. And so every, like a lot of the work we've been doing is every morning launching that data collection 
it crashes for a bunch of countries. And so we spend a couple of hours wow. fixing those scripts. Why to... isn't this standardized? It feels like it's in literally everyone's interest to have some yeah, uh, norms and formats. I think part of it is actually there's no incentive to do that. Mm. Uh, like it would have to be standardized by an institution. I think it would have to be the role of the WHO most likely to have a common like common standard format for that. Maybe there's a hope that because of COVID, people are going to be thinking about that more. But currently, there's no particular plan to like standardize that in any way. Um, I think there's also that like the kind of counterproductive thing of because we made the effort of collecting everything, <laughs> like there's no incentive for people to standardize it because right, right. they know whatever happened. Like we need the data; it needs to be available. So they know we'll make the effort. Yeah. Well, it definitely sounds like there is like some incentive, right? So the degrees, as you said, right? That like our world and data is like creating a lot of value by like manually going through and like standardizing this stuff that should probably be in like somebody's interest that their data will be able to be compiled with like somebody else's data. It's actually in our interest in a way. And mm. so what we started doing after a few weeks and especially as countries became very aware, especially for the vaccinations that we were the only source and so if they started vaccinating and they wanted the data to be on the mm. dashboard and in the data, they got in touch with us saying like, oh, we just started vaccinating. Can you please, please, please add the data? Right. And so that gave us leverage to like say, okay, but then can you please put it in a nice format? Can you put it in a spreadsheet at least? Can you, can you add the, I don't know, the name of the vaccines or some basic information that you haven't yeah. provided? So we did that for a few countries. And even for some countries, we actually got into a position of like, being involved in government meetings where they asked us exactly how to publish the data, which was nice. But in most countries, that did not happen. And so we just kind of had to deal with the format they gave us, which sometimes was just kind of a pain, but we could still deal with it. But sometimes it actually meant not having enough information mm -hmm. because, for example, so that was not the case in the UK, but in, in many EU countries, um, some vaccines were one dose, some were two dose. And if you don't publish the data in a, in a good enough format, there's basically no way to know which people have gotten the, the first dose of a one dose vaccine or the first dose of a two dose vaccine. And, right, and right. so whether they've completed the, the protocol already. And so because of that, we spent like weeks and weeks trying to pass that information and asking governments to fix that data so we could actually understand yeah, it, was the opposite ever like true or did you ever get inklings of it where, you know, governments or, or some kind of like body or authority doesn't want to make the like data like easily comparable or, or super transparent? Yeah, uh, we had a few instances of this where we kept asking questions and we either would not get any reply or the reply would be extremely vague uh, enough to give us a sense that like probably in some countries, actually the national system was not precise enough to give them accurate numbers on a national level, maybe because I don't know, the, the systems were not interconnected correctly. And either they were not counting everyone or there was some double counting happening. And so like giving us disaggregated data would have revealed that. And mm -hmm. so they gave us like very aggregate numbers, like very ballpark numbers. Um, yeah, like, yeah, some exchanges with some countries made it pretty clear that there was something a little fishy with the data. It probably wasn't like on a huge scale. Like I'm not yeah. expecting that any country has only vaccinated 10% and they've pretended to vaccinate 80%. It's more like at some point you realize that actually some country is pretending to know exactly a number and it's like a ballpark estimates within a few percent, a few percentage points. But, mm -hmm. and it's actually the, like, it's, it's, it's known that for example, it is the case in the US. Like it's been very clearly documented that because there's been some problems with the data in terms of 
people going to get their second dose, but sometimes being counted as like a second first dose. It's not clear in the US exactly how many okay. people have been fully vaccinated with the original protocol versus how many people have gotten the first dose. Mm, yeah. And to this day, it's still not really resolved. Yeah, in general, I wonder if there is some dynamic where there definitely is an incentive to collect and report the data, but maybe there are much weaker incentives to make that data play well with other countries' data, maybe kind of standardize it to the same kinds of formats and just generally make it digestible and understandable because by that point it's out of my hands and without some kind of coordinating mechanism, it's like, where does that incentive come from, right? Like my job is done. Yeah, exactly. Which is, and, and that, to be fair, the only institution that outside of special circumstances like this one where we had a little bit of leverage temporarily, outside of that, the only institution is the WHO. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have like actual leverage to impose formats so when, for example, a new pandemic starts or there's a new uh, infectious disease episode, they actually publish uh, a case detection form that they send to countries uh, and that countries have to send back every time they get a new case of the right. disease. And that lists things like, like, I don't know, age of the person, like date of birth, gender, uh, symptoms, things like that. And they can impose a common set of, uh, of reporting standards. Uh, the problem is that the whole system of the WHO case detection form has been thought for disease with very few cases. Mm. Uh, so it's like you get a new case and you actually like literally the, the form is like four pages for one person, for one right. case. Whoa. And so this makes sense when an outbreak starts. But when you've got like 100,000 cases a day, which has happened in many countries, you, you cannot possibly fill those forms. So basically countries, they completely stop filling those forms. Mm. And what they should have access to would be some kind of standardized system for aggregated numbers, but that mm. doesn't exist. Sounds like it could exist there, right? Sounds pretty easy to... It, I mean, technically that. speaking, yes. Technically speaking, we're only talking about some kind of API where yeah. each government would have an access uh, with a key and they could push new numbers or revise numbers if they need to. But... As far as I know, there is nowhere that they can actually do that. Um, they do that indirectly by publishing files in the open mm. that we, for example, at our World in Data or Johns Hopkins University pull once, like one time in every morning to get yeah. the data. But and so we create a common standard, but they can still publish the data in all kinds of formats. Yeah. And how likely do you think it is? So I guess like part of the argument here is that like COVID was like unprecedented that like, you know, in the WHO's existence or something, maybe, I don't know if this is true, uh, that, you know, you had to deal with like case numbers as big as like with COVID and that this like full page system yeah. um, was kind of broken. Like given that, like how likely do you think it is that like the WHO or like some other like international body here is now gonna take steps and, and, and fix this for like the next pandemic? In terms of willingness, yeah. like it's high. And like, mm -hmm. I, like I've been involved in a few discussions uh, with the WHO and other institutions, and like I've I've seen the fact that they are they, they genuinely want to do better. Mm. Um, I think it, what makes me skeptical is the fact that I'm not really seeing like hints of an actual change. Um, the main reason for that is that the a recent example is monkeypox, mm. where we've had the same thing of like oh here are a few cases and more cases and more cases. And most of the discussions I've heard were discussions around that form, like what questions should we put on the form? And it took mm -hmm. like several weeks to get the form right. Um, and obviously these were important questions, like what should we ask countries to report and all that. But again, it took like several weeks to get that form right. And during those several weeks, the epidemic just kept growing. 
And the institution that has done the actual work of counting cases in a way that's useful and usable is a private institution. It's Global.Health, mm. uh, which is based at Oxford again. And they've been doing the work that I think the WHO should be doing. And yeah. they like we have a monkeypox data explorer now, and it's based on their data. It's not right, based on yeah. the WHO data. So if I'm understanding you right, like to be clear, these like four page reports, right, on an individual case, like they have a lot of value. Yeah. And to the degree that like, especially early on in the pandemic, which is a really critical time to maybe have some of this detail and like resolve some of these unknowns. This is like really important, but it sounds like that one of the bottlenecks is like, when do you move from that like four page stage to a coordinated international? No, yeah. we're going to like aggregate and like count things like stage. Exactly. Up. I think, I think these would ideally, ideally need to be two separate systems mm. where you would still collect individual data on many cases to be able to uh, analyze at an epidemiological level things like symptoms and gender and age and many kind of breakdowns but at some point you just get to a level that is physically impossible to pass like you cannot possibly ask a country to publish like to report a hundred thousand forms per day mm -hmm. uh, this just cannot work and i think this probably the system has been designed for smaller outbreaks like maybe ebola mm -hmm. or something like that where it is it is literally possible to do a few hundred cases a day or a few a few thousand maybe um, but yeah, at some point, this kind of breaks down. And I'm, I'm completely willing to think that, yeah, COVID was the first example of that. And I mm -hmm. think now we need to move away from this, from something that is less of a form-based reporting system where you print out a PDF of four pages, but something that looks more like an API where a country pushes like, like 4,273 for today. And that's like the data they have. Well, if you happen to be a tech literate, high-ranking official at the WHO, <laughs> yeah. you know who to call. Um, great. I actually, I had just one probably very naive question, which is, so I'm a government. I am publishing my case numbers on some outbreak. Um, just very briefly, where am I getting those numbers from? So maybe presumably like hospitals are reporting to like kind of regions. And is there some sort of just bottom up like aggregation? Yeah, it's very bottom up. Uh, it, it obviously depends a lot on the country, but the typical thing is like hospitals or very local health system reporting to a regional level. And then people at the regional level sending this to a national authority mm -hmm. and the national authority basically adding up the cases. Mm -hmm. um, what this looks like in practice was a lot of Excel spreadsheets actually mm -hmm. early on, because again, like there's, there's never been really any need to do this quickly. Like usually when epidemic starts, it's basically either the flu or nothing. Like it's never happened that you get a lot national outbreak of anything in a country like France or the UK and that you need to count them up quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so like, I've, I've actually seen some spreadsheets of like, especially vaccinations early on in France, where it was literally like bottom up, like Excel spreadsheets being sent to a national authority and like a person literally adding them up together to get a national number, which is why it took so long at the beginning, because mm -hmm. it's a long process. Um, and in every single country, there was a, a, a process of like computer system engineering where they had to build system from scratch uh, that they didn't have to right. sum up the numbers, uh, especially for things like testing, where they had to like get the data bottom up from like pharmacies and hospitals and doctors and like get those pharmacies to connect up to the common system to actually get like at 6 p.m. each day to get the number of cases for that day, which is something where, again, like if you haven't designed that system in advance, it takes months to build. Which institutions really stood out over COVID, which did really well on collecting and sharing data? 
I think the the main ones were all university based. Um, the the main one that started very early on was Johns Hopkins University. Uh, they started extremely early counting cases and deaths, uh, and they still are today. And they are the main data source for this. Uh, and then two projects out of Oxford. Uh, the first one is the Blavatnik School of Government with the OxCGRT project, which is uh, basically looking at policy and restrictions and things like that. And over time, since like the first day of restriction in the pandemic, they've been basically collecting per country per day, whether schools are closed, whether transports are open, whether, I don't know, external visitors can come into the country and things like that. Uh, and it's a very valuable data set. And the other institution is uh, a world in data where we've been doing again, uh, testing and, and vaccinations, uh, and also a little bit of uh, hospital and ICU data. Mm. Uh, outside of that, uh, I would say that in terms of systematic data collection, the main efforts then have been done by the European CDC, which has been doing a pretty good job considering that they're a tiny institution. Uh, of a few dozen people. So they published very good data sets. Um, early on, we also used them for cases and deaths. Uh, but the problem is that on many data sets, they actually have a mandate to just do European countries, which mm. is fairly limited and you know just mm. only part of what we need. Uh, and also, again, they have a small team uh, and they're quite good on the actual public health side, but not necessarily the best in terms of data engineering. So they get uh, the updates can you know be a little bit late. Uh, they have a lot of errors coming through, and so we when we use that data, we we very often emailed them almost every day with like mistakes we found in the data because they hadn't implemented checks to make sure that you know like you didn't just add a zero at the end of a number right. uh, by mistake, which can happen a lot when you do manual input. Um, so yeah, ECDC was, I think, did a good job considering their resources, but not quite uh, up to the standard that we would need. And then there's the WHO that, again, did their best, but I think was kind of late to the party every time. Um, it happened again on vaccinations where for a good six months, uh, they did not publish any data on vaccination. Mm. And it, it left us in this very weird position of being the only source in the world to like let the world know how many people had been vaccinated, which is very strange. Uh, also put a lot of responsibility and pressure on us. Um, and and they, they, ha they, end up, they ended up doing it. Uh, they ended up like launching their own dashboards and again, uh, publishing the data that, that governments were sending to them directly, but it took them months. Um, and also making improvements uh, took them a very long time because again, they don't really have the technical expertise to do that. So for example, when booster shots started, uh, it took them six months to actually add a booster column to the data set because I'm guessing that it might have been implemented by some kind of subcontractor. Right. And so they didn't right. have the technical capacity to add a new column to the file yeah. uh, or something like that. Oh. But I don't have the full story, but at least I know that, you know, it started in June uh, in Israel, the booster shots. And it's only, I think, in December that they added the booster column when hundreds of countries, like more than 100 oh, yeah, countries yeah. had actually started uh, boosting people. So, yeah, it's like... Uh, the WHO is a kind of a, a recurrent story of they always end up doing stuff. And once they do them, they do them pretty well. But it's just given the time frame we're dealing with and given that yeah, everything yeah. everything needs to be done fast when a pandemic hits, um, it just doesn't seem like they are the resources to, to do that well. I'm, I'm curious, given the like, yeah, 
constraints of like the unprecedented nature of COVID and uh, also just like given some of the resource constraints and stuff, like how did governments, especially in developing countries or like LMIC, like backgrounds and stuff like um, do, right? Like when it came to like reporting data and stuff, it sounds that like uh, the WHO, like we went through the WHO, like a lot of this, but I'm, I'm curious, like in particular, how, how you think that went? Yeah, a lot of it went through the WHO. Uh, and for a lot of countries, we basically had to wait until the WHO started publishing numbers because we just didn't have any information outside of that. Uh, and for other countries, it was really a mixed bag of uh, some countries published numbers on websites, but those were really the ones where, that were really hard to collect. Mm -hmm. Most of it was manual collection because it wouldn't be any kind of open data, open file, uh, or even a regular table. It would yeah. just be like... I don't know, a wall of text or an image sometimes and like within that image would there would be a number yeah. and so either you start getting into some kind of image recognition software or you just kind of like it, i mean it was easier and less costly for us to actually have someone go to the website of malawi every day and look at the image and type the number it was oh, just wow. easier um the problem is also you run into problems of like in some countries you just don't understand the language so you don't understand what's on the image and maybe yeah. they've moved the number from one cell to the other and so, yeah, we, we spent a lot of time doing like, like awful things. Like just, I often had my phone on Google Translate in the photo mode, uh, pointed at my computer screen to like scan the text of an image wow. to get the translation of that text uh, to make sure I was looking at the right number. Um, so things like that. Um, and then it was a lot of, uh, a lot of also technical constraints uh, in a lot of developing countries. We found out that actually, uh, the health ministry doesn't have its official website because often I'm guessing that the reason is that uh, technically it would be considered too unstable and so the website would crash very often. And so what they do, which is very smart, is to use Facebook, for example, huh. as a publishing platform because right. Facebook never crashes. So the, the, the information will always be online. And so you end up with like um, the page of the health minister of an African country uh, that uh, publishes the number of cases every day, but that means that what we do is basically go to the page every day, look for the latest posts with the number of cases and copy that number by hand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which again is, is kind of something I would have never imagined, but something we had to do very often. And that for a few countries, we still did until recently. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can confirm, but our friend Angela mentioned as well that uh, you occasionally got kind of messages from people having just received their booster shot or their vaccination, kind of like messaging in and being asked uh, or asking if they uh, their number can be like updated on the tables. That is true. And we never really understood whether it was a joke or not, or whether people, <laughs> or whether people actually thought that we would collect them one by one. But uh, yeah, we got a few of those of people you know, again, maybe jokingly or very seriously uh, emailing us saying, yeah, I got my booster shot today. Can you please add me to the to the list? Um, so obviously we emailed back saying, uh, thank you very much, but uh, hopefully your government knows that and we'll, we'll get it through your government. Uh, but yeah, it, it did I, I hope it's not a joke. I think it's like a really sweet gesture yeah. of like yeah, people yeah. kind of doing that. Yeah, thing. maybe they think right. we, we are just dealing with hundreds of thousands of people <laughs> <laughs> confirming people one, one by one. Yeah. <laughs> um, nice. Maybe it would be worth talking about just the use of data and good data visualization in times of crises in general, whether it's a pandemic or something else. So how did you think about just Owen's role in, in COVID and how does that extend to other kinds of crises? I think uh, a lot of it was providing trustworthy data in a context where, as we've seen, 
uh, just because something is very bad and very urgent doesn't mean that people don't have the same problems of like mistrust and polarization and conspiracy theory and, and all that. And so I think within those short time frames of uh, crises, you actually have an even stronger need for trustworthy things and trustworthy data. Um, and so I think of OID as like its main role during COVID has been to be a place where people can get online, go see a chart every day and know that what they're looking at is accurate and trustworthy and up to date and that they don't have to second guess what we put up on the website. Um, it also means that what has always made me very happy is when I see people online who like fiercely argue about something COVID related, but both of them, like for example, in a Twitter conversation, both of them refer to OID graphs to make their point, which I think is very cool when that happens, because it really happens. Like if you had people arguing fiercely about, I don't know, some kind of thing related to politics or something, they would, the main thing they would do would be to quote completely different sources that would just not agree. And so they would basically criticize each other's sources saying your source is not trustworthy, neither is yours. And so this was just like never end. Whereas I think with COVID numbers, most of the time people on both sides of the of the of the debate have agreed that they can use our data, which makes me really happy, and I think which makes like which provides a lot of value, because again that means that people don't have different sources for COVID data. They have a few sources, but they know that these sources don't contradict each other. Uh, now, obviously, that doesn't apply to everything. So, for example, we we've started adding some data a few months ago about. Uh, death rates by vaccination status. Uh, so death rates among unvaccinated people and vaccinated people. And this is something where when we started pushing that data and putting it online, here some people started saying, oh, like, I mean, this cannot possibly be true. Our world in data must be controlled, manipulated, financed by some right. people who want vaccination to happen. But for the more reasonable uh, debates about things like restrictions and whether the restrictions should go on, whether they should be relaxed, it was it was good to see that people trusted us. Yeah, and and in that time of crisis, uh, like or well, the most acute like time of crisis, I'm imagining here like 2020 and 2021. Like as a basic question, do you know like what kind of decisions this data would have been used to inform? Is this around like you know when to kind of like issue lockdowns or when to like ease up? Is it about um, like you know one dose, two dose uh, like strategies and, and the like? Um, yeah, could you give a, a picture there of what kind of decisions that that would influence? It's hard to track exactly, uh, but the main thing we provided and that actually worked really well in that context was country comparisons. Um, and it's not something I would have necessarily guessed if you had asked me in like early 2020, the extent to which all countries kept comparing each other. Yeah. Uh, like it, it was quite crazy to me that almost every single decision that the French government took was compared in the light of what the German, what the Italian, what the yeah. Spanish, what the British government did. Uh, and when those governments did things that were deemed good by people in France, then they would be compared and people would be like, oh, we need to do the same thing and vice versa when they did something that looked bad, like we should really not do the same thing. So I think country comparison is the thing that we mostly enabled by just making it available from a right. user interface point of view, where people could really easily like select countries and compare them to one another. Uh, and I think that allowed uh, people to push forward restrictions or policies in general that would have taken uh, more time to happen. I think the best example of that is very early vaccination in the EU, mm -hmm. where during the first 10 days of the vaccination in late December, it was very quick. Uh, it was very quickly visible that 
governments had completely different ideas of what it meant to vaccinate the country. Uh, like some governments started really fast and did as best as they could to vaccinate a lot of elderly people very quickly. Uh, other governments um, started extremely slowly, as in like a few dozen people per day uh, for the first few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happened again, like especially in France, which so I, I live in France, so I, I got to see this debate firsthand. And when in the first few days, like the governments didn't publish any numbers. And then when they started publishing the first number after a few days, the number was 80. 80 people had been vaccinated after like four days of vaccination. Um, And in the meantime, Germany had vaccinated like several thousand people. And I think that country comparison uh, obviously pushed the French government to make their vaccination faster just because of sheer comparison. And the kind of like, I mean, there were a few days of literal mockery where people made fun of the French government for that. And I think that obviously pushed them to make things faster. Um, I think, I mean, there's also been some much more like direct things where we were very surprised, for example, to know that in Hungary, the the protocol to allow a vaccine to be used in the country was that a million doses of that vaccine had to be used somewhere in the world. Uh Uh, And so as soon as the vaccine had been used a million times somewhere like in, in the world in general, then that vaccine was deemed safe and could be used in the country. And so they relied on our data to do that. And so that meant that, you know, in a very direct way, the data we provided meant that people could be vaccinated in Hungary with new vaccines, um, which is pretty crazy as a as a way to evaluate a vaccine. But I think in some way it kind of makes sense. Um, and, and yeah, it was a very direct way that we, that we contributed. Uh, and yeah, I think these are the main ones, like country comparisons and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that. That kind of gives like a different flavor, actually, to what I had in mind, where this sounds a lot more of like, you know, rather than helping somebody like crunch the numbers on the spreadsheet and do like some cost uh, benefit analysis and like a technocratic bureaucracy, it sounds like a lot of this is just like helping enable the like democratic process or like keeping governments to account and kind yeah, of like, like healthy competition. Yeah, yeah, like influencing the like decision making process through that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, in many ways, uh, yeah, in many ways, we didn't provide direct analysis. What we provided was the capacity for journalists and people in general and researchers to have that healthy debate in a country about what should we do now. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's good also because the whole pandemic involved some pretty large restrictions put on society. And so I think it's good that these things were debated. Um, and I think it's very good that a few institutions try to make sure that everyone was able to see how cases evolved after restrictions, how deaths evolved, uh, whether things were having an effect. So I think these, right. this has been quite essential. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine, especially after the crisis now, right? Like just having this data set available is going to enable yeah. a lot more analysis, like, you know, Definitely. prepare yeah. the next pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And one, one thing we've also kind of enabled has been efforts by researchers to do analyses. And so there have been like hundreds of papers published like citing our data because it just allows people to uh, either do country comparisons or even within a country to look at trends and how things evolved after some things were put in place. Um, And another thing I haven't mentioned in terms of like the the direct impacts of our work has been the reuses of our data um, where a lot of people, I think, obviously still don't know our world in data uh, in the world, uh, and that's perfectly normal. But I think a lot of people, like a huge percentage of people in countries like the UK or the US have actually seen our data somehow through other websites. Uh, because again, especially on vaccination, our data 
like fed into the dashboards of the Guardian, the BBC, uh, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and that would they, they would basically like put another layout on top of it to make their own charts and everything, but the data behind those charts would be ours. So a lot of the, the, the impact we've had is also just enabling those dashboards to exist so that people who just get their news through the New York Times without really browsing other websites can see data that's accurate and, and mm. useful. I learned this phrase today, naked numbers, which is just raw numbers in isolation from any context. Compare this to numbers where you're able to really easily compare them, maybe even visually compare them to, for instance, so say we're talking about case numbers. I don't know what 10,000 new cases this week means, but I can begin to understand what it means compared to other comparable countries, compared to the last few weeks. Maybe I can extrapolate the curve forwards and figure out what that implies onto the top of just having the data in the first place, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think it's a, it's a sort of intermediate stage that people don't really think about too much. People either think about the extremely raw data, like just counting cases and just that, mm. or they think about the ultimately like very advanced research right. side of things where like you've got whole epidemiological models looking at the 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 trends with of of, a, of an epidemic uh, done by research groups and universities, but I think yeah, there's like this intermediate step of you take raw case counts or raw death counts, and you kind of polish them and you make sure you harmonize the dates and you harmonize the mm. name of the countries, and you add a seven day average and you see the bumps and you kind of fix them so that the curve makes sense. Uh, and you add a map onto that and you allow people to look at weekly and bi-weekly and cumulative and things like this. And this is like the bulk of the stuff we did actually is to just make it look pretty, make it look usable uh, and also kind of provide people with things that we think make sense. Like for example, we, we very early on started saying like you should not look at daily cases because the, the raw daily number doesn't make any sense because it's too influenced by the, the date the date of the the day of the week uh, or whether it's a weekend or something like that so you should uh, you should look at the seven day average but obviously for most people it's like it's extremely difficult to calculate a seven day average they wouldn't even know where to start and so we do the work of providing that making sure that the data behind it is good if we think the source we're using is not good enough then we change it and we we basically allow thousands of people to do that kind of bit of analysis themselves without having to download anything. And if we didn't do that, then people would have to kind of go to the website of France to look at cases, go to the website of the UK to find cases, like put everything in an Excel spreadsheet, divide by population, and it would be extremely time consuming. And so very few people would actually do that. One thing I was curious about is, I don't know how much like duplication of all the just infrastructure involved in collecting and presenting data there is across countries and maybe across journalistic outlets as well. But have you thought about just making this a kind of public good where you just share the infrastructure that you've built up with, for instance, other governments and just help them set up their own outlets as well? Uh, there's definitely a lot of duplication that happens. Uh, <laughs> also because, again, governments don't really understand that what we ask them to do is just to publish a file with... Mm like even a text file would be fine uh, or CSV file or spreadsheet and that we we don't really ask them to publish kind of pretty dashboards or anything like that but they go they always do the dashboard first and they they don't do the file they don't they don't really understand yeah. that's what we're asking them and so they always do the dashboard first and so they spend weeks if not months creating a dashboard and improving it and all that while forgetting to actually do just do the thing that we would need to do um, what we tried to provide there was first of all kind of advice by telling them that we don't need the dashboard, we can make the dashboard. Like it makes more sense if 
one or at least a few institutions make a dashboard, but that not every single country goes through the work of like just making a website. Making a website takes time. Like, yeah. like making a website like the UK COVID dashboard, it's extremely good, but it took them like months to, to make it, like to polish it, to make it good, to make it look nice. You have to do like make design and like hire developers and like improve it and choose colors and whatnot. And like, if you multiply that by 200 countries, it's right. a lot of wasted effort. And then probably also creates like a bunch of heterogeneity, right? Which then makes yeah. the point of like standardizing all of this. Exactly. Stuff, like, and so it. it's a weird situation where we really think they should not focus on that. But at the same time, within the government, the, the incentives are opposite. The incentives for somebody like an advisor to the health minister or civil servants, the incentives is to create a dashboard because it's something you can show to the to the minister it's something that actually shows that you've done a lot of work and it's something that makes your country look nice mm. whereas publishing a csv files is not really valued by people i mean it's valued by people like me but like for most like people CSV like cool. if you just provide a spreadsheet and say my job is done then people will tell you like no your job is not done like you've, yeah. you haven't analyzed the data you haven't informed people yeah. but i think yeah like i think the people like people in governments uh, they should they should kind of have the opposite focus and the opposite preoccupation yeah one kind of like maybe more personal question I have is it sounds like you were like really in the thick of it with the like COVID decision making crisis. And also, uh, right, um, if, if I recall, we're like in some of like government meetings or people came to you uh, like for advice as well. Like how has all of this like, you know, shaped your worldview of like how the world works and especially with like, you know, the question of like where are the adults in the room and stuff as well? Like how, how do you see the world now differently uh, than, than you did maybe, yeah, like two or three years ago? It has changed a lot, uh, not necessarily for the better. Uh, I think it has updated my view on several things um, in terms of like big international institutions. Probably it has updated for the worse in the sense that I, I still think those institutions should exist. And I think their work is essential for international cooperation and setting standards. But I think in terms of what I've seen these institutions do on a day to day basis, it just seems to me like the current model just doesn't work. The incentives are wrong. They're too slow. They're not flexible enough. They don't have the resources to work properly. They don't have the technical skills to work properly. So yeah, like I, like if a pandemic hit now, I just don't really expect much from the WHO, for example. Yeah. Uh, maybe in a few years, if they manage to fix the way they work and they hire the right people, maybe. But like if something happened next month, I will not turn to the WHO and expect much. Yeah. Uh, which I think is pretty sad and is something I think I would have been more optimistic about a few months ago or a few yeah. years ago. Maybe to, to kind of prod somewhat controversially as well, I, I wonder how you view, how do you view the um, ability to have agentiness on the world as well? Like the other thing that just like strikes me as like insane is this scrappy our world and data like startup or something was able to just go and do this and presumably shape a whole bunch of government decisions and outcomes, right? Like to some degree, the trajectory of how this big crisis went as well. That also just strikes me as like, oh, wow, the world is way more fragile and kind of messy, but also like doable, right? Like, yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, if you if you frame it in a positive way, it's also very exciting. Like as, <laughs> on an individual level, I think it's pretty right. cool that, you know, we were able to do that, even like on a personal level that I was able to do that. Mm. Like if you had told me three years ago, a pandemic's going to hit, and on a personal level, you're going to have some influence on what people think about this event. I would not have thought about any possible way that could happen. And now it seems like there is, um, which again, like the negative way of framing it is that it can happen because of the, the lack of agency of, of institutions. But but yeah, I think it's it's pretty good. And I think... I think maybe from from an EA perspective, it also kind of supports the idea that you know you can have you can have an effect, uh, you can have more effect than you possibly think at any given time. 
because things just don't really play out the way you think. Um, so I think even going into things like Alvia on the vaccine front, like yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting to think, okay, if you look at a, a system or like a landscape of things, you might think, okay, it's impossible to possibly create a company that could like compete with uh, like pharma companies. But actually maybe if you try and maybe if things don't exactly end up looking the way you thought they did, yeah. maybe you have an opportunity to actually do that. Um, so yeah, that's what happened on the international level. And I think on the, on the national level, it also updated my view a lot, but here it's more towards, uh, I think it's more towards, uh, revising my view of how decisions are made. Uh, I was pretty struck by a lot of people I talked to, especially in the French government, uh, around how a lot of these decisions were made and the fact that especially around vaccination policies and restrictions and the fact that it's not like this was thought about for weeks and months uh, because obviously people didn't have time which is completely understandable mm -hmm. but that means that a lot of decisions as far as I understood and as far as some people explained to me were made by a handful of people mm -hmm. um, like I don't know, tonight the president is going to make uh, some kind of speech and then he's going to announce something what's going to be the list of policies in that in that speech and that list of policies was sometimes defined like at 3 p.m. by a group of five people. Um, and, and yeah, and that, that's been very surprising to me to realize that. And it might not have been the case in every country. But obviously, again, because of the, like, the shortened time frame and the time compression of a crisis like this, it's perfectly understandable. But I think that begs the question of like, who are the people, who are the five people in right. the room? Yeah. And like, are they the right people? <laughs> can we maybe, like, can maybe some people have influence? Like, can we, can we incentivize some people to apply for these jobs to maybe make the better decisions when that happens? Um, so yeah, I think it has changed my view on this a lot. Cool, so maybe we could zoom out now and think about potentially even bigger uh, crises than COVID. I'm curious what you think we can, learn from the last two years about what the world's response might look like to, yeah, potentially even more serious uh, catastrophes, potentially up to the level of existential threats. Yeah. Um, I think on this front, I've kind of updated towards being more pessimistic. Um, Great. <laughs> <laughs> Not so much because the world has failed to coordinate, because mm -hmm. I think there's been a lot of coordination, actually, and most countries have responded in a way that's been somewhat effective, uh, and a lot of countries have done better than others. I think it's more the, the fact that if you look at what happened really early on, like in February, January even, like it was extremely slow. Mm -hmm. And the problem is if you start thinking about things that would be X risk-like, those things, I mean, there could be some that could play out slowly, but most of them will play out quickly. Um, most of them will play out on the on the order of like minutes, hours, days, maybe a few weeks, uh, if you think about it, slow AGI takeoff, for example. But we, we, we won't have from like late December to like early April like we had here. Um, and so I think the fact that it took so long to coordinate and so long to react has made me think that we should be more mindful of those uh, those particular moments where things might happen and that we need to make sure that if something kicks off, we actually react quickly and right. we don't just postpone the decision. Yeah. Um, and I think like kind of building on this idea of the most important century, I keep referring to like the, the idea of the most important week, right. which might be like, if humanity ever disappears, 
like things like I mean obviously no one will remember but if someone yeah. could remember back, they yeah. would remember specific dates like right. I don't know, like April 21st yeah. when the world failed to act when X happened yeah. um, and I think it's very important to have some kind of model of what we would want to happen if something started that looked like an S-Chris possibility. Mm -hmm. So something that would be like either pathogen or like 50% mortality or an AGI takeoff or, or like a potential nuclear war. Uh, and it's not exactly like for some things like nuclear war, I think we have a pretty good model of what we want countries to do and like governments have plans in place to know how they want to react. But I think for something like AGI, obviously governments have no idea, but even like, I think effective altruism as a community and long-termism uh, researchers don't really think too much about or don't really discuss too much as far as I know, what do we actually want countries to do? Like if tomorrow somebody creates an AGI um, and we think it has takeoff capacity, what is it that we think governments should do? Like, should they, should they kind of like kill it? Should they, should they take over the company by law or something like right. that? And like, I think that, I mean, it's obviously very difficult to answer this question, but I think, I think basically I'm, I'm, I'm always worried that if something happens next week, mm. that actually we would be pretty bad at it. Like yeah. that we yeah. would basically, for all this time we spend thinking about this stuff, that basically we wouldn't really be that useful and we would really know what to do. Yeah. Well, it sounds to me like there's at least two things going on here. One is for some particular threat, let's say it is um, uh, AGI takeoff or uh, a really bad pandemic, there are all these somewhat technical questions about what the world should do, right? To mitigate or stop the risk. And then there's this more general question, which is, do we actually have as a world the core capabilities to respond to an extremely fast moving crisis extremely quickly? Um, and that kind of cuts across the risks, yeah. right? And there, I guess you can start thinking about just in general terms, what this kind of crisis response, maybe it could be like a team in a government, maybe it could exist at the international level as well, what it could look like and whether it could exist, or are you just too pessimistic about the existing incentives for this thing to exist at all? Uh, no, I think it should exist. I definitely think it should exist. One thing I'm slightly skeptical of is like the, the obvious legitimate place where you would want to build this would be at the UN level, for example. But given, again, given what I've seen from international institutions mm -hmm. and the, the incentives they had and this kind of slowness they have built in, I think it's, it's, it would be a tall order to expect a UN-built institution to be truly a rapid response team, mm -hmm. like to react within a few hours or days. I think I would be extremely surprised by that. Um, what could possibly happen would be some kind of private uh, external system where people would build rapid response teams to kind of at least analyze what happens. But then the problem is that you just get to the level of analysis. Uh, so some people in effective altruism have been talking about uh, the idea of building rapid response teams to, so that people are kind of available on the fly to kind of stop the work they're doing currently. And if something seems to happen, like I don't know, the, the war in Ukraine, for example, or to become available within a few hours to work on a problem. The problem is those people would be private citizens in every respect. And so right. they could provide advice, they could provide analysis, they could maybe stop, like provide contacts to people in government, but ultimately they wouldn't have any kind of power. So what you would want ideally would be a mix of the two where you would have something truly rapid and can that can react quickly, but something that has actual leverage. Yeah. Um, and in the current landscape, it's hard to imagine exactly what that would be and where this would live 
but obviously yeah. I think I think it is needed. Yeah, I guess speaking of the UN, I agree it's a little difficult to imagine some kind of office for saving the world which just yeah. nails it within a couple of days. Um, does feel easier to imagine some kind of convening mechanism where there is some agreement um, for when certain conditions are triggered, representatives of countries convene in this place very quickly, and they maybe have certain kinds of just clear responsibilities. It's like delegated in advance. Um, and so the UN itself is not <laughs> calling the shots, but it is providing the kind of, um, it's like giving a space for just coordinating very quickly. Um, and it's kind of like neutral ground and it facilitates that discussion. And maybe that just buys you a few days. I think so. I think that sounds much more doable, but it does sound useful. Um, it would be kind of an international equivalent of the Moscow-Washington hotline during the Cold War, where you would have, yeah, some kind of like immediate system to convene as many countries as possible to get them to talk, either to get them to cooperate on a problem with like between countries, like a war, or to get them to cooperate on something country-specific like an AGI. Yeah. Um, and I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's, yeah, that sounds much more doable. I'm not exactly sure what that would lead to because then once they're on the phone or they're gathered in that room, you would actually need them to agree on something. But at least it sounds like an improvement over what currently happens, which is right now, if a pandemic hits, the WHO takes a few days to react and then kindly invites the representative of these countries to come next week to a right, meeting. Yeah. And like, it just, it has this delays of a few days, which again, kind of has weirdly worked for COVID and for monkeypox and things like that, because we're facing epidemics that actually kill around or less than 1% of the people that they, they affect. But if we think of something like, again, like 30 or 50% mortality, mm. it just doesn't sound like this can wait 10 more days. Right, yeah. And maybe also like worth kind of like spelling out, presumably when you're talking about like the most important week or something like this as well, it's about like a week where we still have, right, like the kind of hinginess where we can like do something about it. It's not necessarily, although it might be the case that like everybody dies within a week, but it is that like it is within a week that you can determine, right, like whether yeah. this becomes uh, like... Uh, you know, like contained kind of pandemic or a COVID level pandemic or something like even worse that kind of spreads, yeah. right? That there are like kind of these like critical uh, like moments. Yeah. And I think part of the work would be to kind of de determine what, what that hingeness hinges on. Yeah. Like what, what are, what are the systems? Like if something happens within a few days, what are the things we would want governments to do? Like in, for example, in the context of a pandemic, would it be like the immediate stop of all kind of international flights? Would it be right. an, like a, an instant lockdowns in all countries? Like, I don't know, something extreme like that, but I think it's actually actually worth discussing what we would want this yeah. there to happen. Uh, and I think it's very difficult to currently know what would happen because we would probably go back to the situation around February, March, 2020 of like countries slowly discussing things in a way that's just way too slow. Yeah. And and there seem to be like kind of like two challenging like dynamics here, or at least two that, that I can think of. One of them is uh, this like issue of like false positives of like, especially right when it comes to these like global catastrophic risks, like existential risks, as you said, we're talking about things that like happen really, really quickly and you need to like act really, really early on. But then the question is like, well, you know, with how much uncertainty can you make a call or um, like, you know, how... Um, quick should you act you know if, if something like monkeypox is like happening should you automatically treat this as like a covid 
kind of style events and shut down flights and call lockdowns kind of early on and what kind of criteria do you set for this um and then the other one seems to be that like yes because we're talking about like things that are like on a global level and like this like really big risks as well there is like clearly some kind of tendency here for things to turn authoritarian where you either have to like season ai lab or shut down like international borders and stuff as well and that just like feels like you know a lot of power that you know and i think understandably that there's like a lot of like hesitation around like setting these kinds of like mechanisms that make these things available so i guess like in all sense really what i'm just like saying here is like this sounds like really difficult and really challenging it is extremely difficult and i think i think it's also why it's worth having those debates beforehand yeah. uh because if the thing that blocks us from stopping an agi is the fact that we haven't talked about it beforehand and the fact that you know a lot of people feel uncomfortable forcing a company to shut down an agi and so it takes a few days to like get parliament to debate about it and maybe parliament decides not to do it and all that like it would just feel like a waste to kill humanity because of that yeah. uh, it'd be a shame and and even i think for for i think a, part of it is also cultivating this idea that uh false positives are a good thing in a way that the idea of reacting strongly to something that looks like it might be really bad mm -hmm. is not something that should be made fun of. Mm -hmm. um, there is a specific case that people in France often refer to during COVID, which is that in 2009, uh, the government and in particular the health minister at the time ordered uh, dozens of millions of doses of vaccines against, against the H1N1 virus. Mm -hmm. uh, because at the time there was kind of a, you could call it a panic or at least some kind of right. pessimistic analysis that maybe this could be a terribly bad flu year. And so the government spent almost a billion euros to order vaccines. And later on, it turned out to be pretty much almost a normal flu year. Mm -hmm. And so, but the, the problem is that this was remembered as a blunder by the government, right. uh, which I think is just a terrible way to look at it. And for years, that particular person was made fun of for that decision, um, which I think now probably, I hope in retrospect, because of COVID now looks like a very smart decision, I would hope. But yeah, and I think it's good to cultivate that idea of it's, you know, all things equal, it's good to react slightly too strongly to a crisis rather than react slightly too weakly. Yeah, I've heard this get called the preparedness paradox, which we talked about in other episodes, but if you successfully, or if, if you do enough to prepare for yeah. um, major crises, one of two things will happen. Either you do so well that you make no blunders like that, and then no one notices because nothing bad happens, yeah. Or you occasionally have these false positives because you kind of need those like, you know, mistakes which are like ex ante sensible, in which case you kind of people like make fun of you. <laughs> and there's really no winning, but it's still very important to do. Yeah. And I think that's why some kind of public information campaign about this is very important. Because as you said, like if we decided now, rightfully so, to increase the budget on pandemic preparedness, and then maybe another pandemic similar to COVID hits in 10 years and we manage it much better then I th maybe people will start saying, well, look at this money we're spending. Like, right. like, why would we spend so much money on pandemic preparedness? We haven't had a pandemic in 10 years. Yeah. Uh, where actually the reason why we don't have them is that we're catching them. So yeah, I think there's definitely a curse there where the more you do uh, and the more it's successful, the less it looks like you should be doing. Okay, let's, let's press on. We're talking about, I guess, some of these kind of more ex-risk or long-termist topics now. Uh, on that topic, it is often said that long-termism lacks certain kinds of feedback loop, which you do get in, for instance, a global health and well-being context. I'm curious, in your experience of the last couple of years at OID, what, did you learn anything about where we could maybe find useful feedback loops for some of these kind of big yeah. uh, long-termist topics? I think obviously the answer should not be that we should wait for big crises, um, because 
Uh, we don't know exactly when they're going to happen. And if we wait for them, it might be too late. Um, I think to me, it's led me to think that smaller crises, and by small, I mean something like COVID or even maybe even smaller. Uh, and I don't mean to be directory when I say that. Obviously, COVID was huge and killed a lot of people, but we're not talking like X risk level of, of uh, accidents. Um, smaller things, so to speak, are also extremely important to look at. Uh, first of all, because obviously these things happen chronologically and when something small happens, you don't know if it's going to be big. Like something big first looks very small, especially something like a pandemic. Um, second, I think it's pretty clear that if we can't do anything to influence a small crisis like COVID, what exactly do we think we're going to do for a pandemic that's like 10 times as bad? Yeah. Um, and I think like some people say, oh, but the reason why we didn't do so much about COVID and like we didn't try very hard is that it was very clear that it was not going to kill humanity. And I mean, sure, but first of all, you don't really know that the virus could have mutated to a much like way worse pathogen. Uh, it could have killed a significant portion of humanity. And in, in many ways, it kind of did, um, like at least much more than we thought it would ever happen. And I think also it's, it's very crucial to think that lessons can also transfer from small crises to big crises. Mm -hmm. um, it's this idea that things would not be radically different the only, like between something like COVID and something 10 times as bad as COVID. The only difference would be that you would need to react 10 times as quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think I think it's the wrong way to think about it to say uh, to say that anything below X risk is not worth looking at. Uh, I think that's a really bad way to look at it. And I think also because everything we work on in long termism is 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 kind of models. Like we will, like hopefully we will never actually work on an X risk. Like it will not happen. And certainly we should not wait for one to actually occur uh, to start building models of uh, of what we should be doing. So I think. Uh, for anything like, you know, speed of international cooperation, uh, preventative measures, like efficacy of, of restrictions or PPE or vaccine production or things like that, we should definitely be looking at smaller crises to, to look at this. Um, so I think to me, uh, there's a whole field of research that can be built uh, to be something around experimental long-termism. So something that isn't just looking at possible crises, but also looking at for something that looks, you know, within an order of magnitude of the next risks, then uh, how has the world behaved? How have we reacted? Uh, could we have done something better? And I think that's the kind of thing that could potentially help you when an actual S risk happens to actually be like to actually be useful and change something. Yeah, it does sound that like one of the challenges here with this kind of experimental long-termism idea, though, is that it must be like really tricky to be able to differentiate where you're like learning really valuable lessons from these order of magnitude, smaller but still relevant crises, where certain factors do generalize and where certain factors like don't generalize to when we're talking about existential risks or yeah, like some, some of these scenarios. I'm particularly curious about like linking that back to our discussion before, where it sounds that our world and data was like hugely influential and uh, impactful when it came to the question of COVID. But I'm wondering more broadly, what is the role of data collection and data standardization here when it comes to existential risks? I think it's very important. And I think, as you said, like it, it, it's important to be honest and think that if an extremely, extremely bad pandemic hits, um, I'm not sure our world and data in its current state would be that useful uh, because even we work much faster than WHO, but we don't like we still work on the scale of a few days or weeks. Mm. Uh, and so I'm not exactly sure that we would play such a role. I think 
I think the answer here would be systems that are built not to be reactive, but to be proactive. Mm -hmm. So things that are surveilling what's happening. Um, I think here the, the idea of standardizing things is very important because the only way you can build surveillance system is by systematizing things and looking at them every day, even when nothing happens, um, to make sure that you catch early signs uh, as early as possible. Um, I think one of the ways we could help with this, and we're starting to think about it, if you take the example of something like the flu, uh, is to build um, a surveillance system that would allow researchers to researchers and journalists and people in general to monitor what's happening regularly, even outside of periods of crises. Mm -hmm. um, so obviously, we wouldn't be like doing any kind of direct data collection ourselves. But the WHO, for example, has a data set of weekly flu cases around the world, uh, which they make available, which is pretty good uh, and it's pretty timely and available publicly. But the way they present it is not so useful. Uh, we could also, so we could make it available in a, in a format that's much more usable. We could also kind of merge it with other time series that are available about the flu, about testing capacity of different countries. Uh, and also it's not just a flu, it's also what people call flu-like disease. So anything that kind of looks like it has the same symptoms, but isn't necessarily the flu. Um, and I think building this kind of like monitoring capacity is also something very important because if we built it in advance, then potentially, if we're talking about that most important week, mm. then potentially within that time frame, we could still be somewhat useful. But I think if it's, if we're talking existential risks and it's something that we haven't anticipated. I don't think even a sort of world in data will be will be very useful if something happens tomorrow. And yeah, yeah. yeah. and like we we might react as quickly as possible, but if it's going to kill humanity, I think we need to think about it beforehand. Yeah, I, it sounds like here yeah, the question for data collection or something and existential risk is this like playing kind of as the like canary in the like coal mine, like really early warning signal. And it sounds that like, yeah, some of our previous episodes about like metagenomic sequencing and uh, like early kind of pandemic warming uh, yeah. systems and stuff here is maybe the, yeah, mm. like- It's like the thing second to layer in that yeah, yeah. chain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in many ways we were able to be useful because COVID had already reached the level where it's the aggregate data that's useful. Right. Where there were so many cases already that the, the, the thing that people found useful was to look at seven day averages, uh, because there was just so much stuff happening already. I think anything before that, it's still pretty unclear exactly what it's used for at the moment. Nice. How about we draw a line under this crisis management stuff and talk about EA, if you're down for that? Yeah, sure. Great. All right. Well, here's a question. What is the OWL and data theory of change? How do you think about how OWL and data has impact? Um, I think I think it's something we've been thinking about much more in the last couple of years, um, mostly because of the impact we've had on the COVID situation. Uh, I think before that, uh, we were kind of content with this idea of you know just building a website that provides extremely good research and data on the world's most pressing problems. Um, and I think now we kind of think more carefully about what exactly are we doing. Uh, how can we measure it? How can we exactly gauge the impact we're having? Um, some of it is still really kind of meta and, and and hard to measure. In many ways, we we want to be a very good epistemic institution for everyone, uh, somewhat like Wikipedia. 
And that means that it's it's hard to measure exactly how you do that and like whether it's working or not. Uh, some things that obviously could happen would be like amount of citations you get and people who visit your website and mm. how often your people use your charts to make points in debates and stuff like that. But that's stuff that's kind of like hard to exactly grasp. Um, even harder to grasp is things like we were very conscious that um, some specific people or some specific decisions matter much more than like a million viewers. Uh, so like in, in some ways you could like forego 99% of the traffic we have on the website. And if you replace it with like a couple of people in government strategically placed mm. and that those people are directly influenced by an article we wrote and they decide to, for example, uh, open one more nuclear power plant uh, because yeah, of something yeah. they read on our world and data, then potentially those two people will have much more influence than a lot of the people we we had reading our articles. Uh, the problem is it's even harder to measure that. Like, how do you <laughs> possibly IP know? Addresses. Yes, yeah. how do you possibly know that a government <laughs> advisor before getting into a meeting, Googled our world and data something, or just yeah. not- or I'm just an advisor, what should I do about it? Yeah, exactly. And then stumbled upon one of our articles, read it, and kind of slightly or strongly changed their mind about something. It's extremely difficult to know. Same thing for philanthropy, where a lot of the impact we think we're having is by redirecting or influencing the way that people give money or the causes they care about. But again, it's very hard to exactly say to what extent. Uh, but it's something where we're trying to think about. It's also something we're trying to measure. There are some ways of gauging that. So for example, the impact you might have on institutions is something you can measure through number of citations like UN reports or like IPCC reports or things like that. And it's something we didn't do initially. We were much more tracking things like mentions in the media, but now uh, we're tracking directly like, yeah, institutional reports uh, to try and get a sense of how much we're influencing things. But again, it's still somewhat based on numbers and on people making clear in public reports that they used us, but it's not exactly clear what happens behind closed doors in meetings. Yeah, I also wanna take the opportunity to maybe zoom out of our kind of like earlier discussion, which was very like express focus and just like flag that, yeah, there's a lot of like tremendous data that our world and data has from everything from like global health to uh, farmed animal welfare to, to climate change. And yeah, curious maybe for you to like also elaborate a bit more there what having these like reliable, like, yeah, sources of data like looks like um, for, for impact rather than just like kind of crisis management. Yeah, exactly. I think I think that's a good question because I think the crisis management aspect is something people think a lot about us now because of COVID. But I think, bef I mean, before that, we were yeah, not yeah. particularly um, focused on crises or anything like that. We actually, were, we tended to focus on much more long-term problems yeah, yeah. that we could take months writing about without it being a problem. So things like poverty and climate change and education around the world and public health. Um, and it's something where definitely still like the bulk of the work that we do is, ex I, I think, extremely useful. Um, we do this work of finding the right data, getting it into the right format, cleaning it, analyzing it to make charts. And it's this idea that people don't have to constantly think about, okay, I want the most up-to-date data on maternal mortality across Africa. Where can I possibly go to get that? Mm. And we've done the work for them of looking into the data, looking into the different sources for maternal mortality, understanding what are the differences between them, reconciling those differences, like building a time series that makes sense uh, within those different sources, 
and putting that in a chart that is customizable, interactive, and that they can use to analyze the situation. Yeah. And I tend to think also as our theory of change of like all those millions of minutes saved because people don't have to do that data collection themselves. Um, in many ways, like we also have data sets, for example, on CO2, where we gather data on like dozens of different metrics about CO2 emissions across mm -hmm. all countries, across time. And it comes from multiple different sources. And the idea is that, sure, some people will have to go back to square one and do their own data collection because they need something other than that. But there will be hopefully thousands, if not more students and researchers and journalists who need what's in that file and they won't have to do that data collection. Yeah. And so this will save them millions of hours of work thanks to that because we've done the effort of providing a data set that's accurate, trustworthy, in a proper format that they can use without buying it, without buying software, without anything like that, with good documentation, where if they find something odd in the data, we actually answer their questions. Um, and so that's a lot of the added value we also have is, uh, yeah, doing that kind of grunt work for people where we, we analyze stuff and we clean stuff and we do all that thing that, all those things that people don't really wanna do, but they still have to do and we allow them to skip that whole phase. Yeah, it is like incredibly surprising to me. Like, yeah, like how much of this, um, at least like in my context, like as a researcher or something, like I hadn't like found in this like easy accessible format until I kind of like stumbled on our world data. The like most recent like painful example is that I spent like probably hours like trying to like eyeball like what these like IPCC like climate scenarios like mean for like GDP and population assumptions and stuff. And I think that is like a our world and data like chart drop that like happened like more recently. I was just like, ah, like <laughs> I, I wish I had that year before that would have like easily saved me a week of time. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think then once you have that, that the, the challenge for us to becomes to make those things early on so mm. that you don't have to make them yourself. Like like basically find all of these things that people keep referring to and keep asking themselves mm -hmm. and make sure we cover all of them and that they can easily find them because it's not just good enough to make those charts and to cover those uh, those problems, but it's also very important for people to easily find this, like things like search engine optimization and like making sure that when they click on the link on the website, they find out what they're looking for and that the search works and things mm -hmm. like this, um, which is also just coming back to like very down to earth things about like maintaining your website and like making sure everything works and yeah, like yeah. making sure the search is good and that you have a good user interface and a good user experience and that, you know, everything is pleasant to use. And I think it's also something that, that a lot of institutions struggle with. Mm. Uh, some institutions have become better. For example, the World Bank in the last few years has done a much better job at making their websites easy to use. And they have a data website that's actually pretty cool. And when you yeah. Google, like when you look for new variables, you can like compare variables. It works well, it's not slow, it's not terrible. Um, so I think, I think if every institution had a website like that, I don't think we would be useless, but I think we would be somewhat less useful if all of these institutions made their data truly browsable, accessible, understandable. Mm -hmm. I think uh, I think we would find ourselves, you know, providing other kind of value adds, but not not specifically this one. But in the meantime, we have plenty of added value to provide mm -hmm. by just getting that data and you know making it available in a format that makes sense. This may be a huge tangent, but I can imagine some people wondering, well, why not something like Wikipedia, which is just fully um, distributed, anyone in the world contributes to it, and there's no kind of you know Wikipedia team that writes most of Wikipedia. Um, one thing that comes to mind is in philosophy, 
So there are Wikipedia articles on different philosophers. There is also a philosophy-specific encyclopedia called the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. And their model is they have a core team of maintainers and they reach out to experts on different topics. Everyone in philosophy goes to that first before Wikipedia. And it's like exceptional and it's been maintained over all these years and just got better and better. And in general, my impression is that this points to some kind of pattern, which is in the world of open source software, the projects that do especially well at getting maintained properly over long time frames are those with a core team of maintainers rather than just this kind of fully distributed um, you know, anyone chips in with some of their spare time type thing. And I guess that's one reason that something like an Awad and Data model does so well is that you have a team of people whose heads are just fully in keeping this thing up to date and keeping it running. Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. And I think uh, I think the reason why we do this and that it works well is that, yeah, as you said, we, we know all of the intricacies of all these data sets. Uh, we've looked into them for like thousands of hours, we know exactly why this variable in this particular set of this particular institutions, why it looks weird for that country in that year. Uh, we know how to reconcile things. Uh, we spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it's actually something like the other way to think about it is we often ask ourselves, why hasn't been, hasn't there been strong competitors to our world in data? Mm. It's something we often wonder <laughs> about, like why we, we would have thought about that by now, there would be at least one website doing almost the exact same thing. Um, and it hasn't been, and I think like for me, it's also just like, there's a huge cost of entry. Mm-hmm. Like if you just taking the time to build the database we have of like thousands of data sets and thousands of charts would take a huge amount of time. And yeah. just because we've done it over 10 years now means that we have kind of a treasure that people could start to build. But first of all, there's no big incentive for them to do that because we've done it. And, and also, yeah, it would take a huge amount of time and they wouldn't know where to start and they would have to start from scratch for all these data sets. They don't have contacts at these institutions. So yeah, it would just take a huge amount of time. I'm wondering like what that maybe then like to challenge or something like means or like how much other low hanging fruit is there if you could just kind of like concert the efforts and like do this kind of big push or something. One example here that like jumps to mind is not sure if it's a competitor, our world and data or a source or something, but something like global burden of disease or something is also like really new, right? Like I think it was a kind of like Gates initiative back in 2014 that tried to map out the daily burden of every disease in the world. And as I understand it, it has like a bunch of issues to like fix still, um, but is like a massive step ahead of what was there before. I'm just curious of what other things might be out there um, that are like ripe if you could just concert either like um, non-profit or, you know, community open source kind of efforts or something to, to do kind of a push here. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a key thing. I obviously sadly don't have an answer because if I did, <laughs> I think I would, I would have told people to do it, but I think there's like some potential ideas of like, when I think about effective thesis, there's a little bit of that, of like solving a coordination problem that doesn't require thousands of people. It just requires a few people to be extremely motivated. Um, one thing we've been thinking about doing and that could be done by potentially another institution would be to tell people about what's missing in the world of knowledge. Uh, like what are the data set that are missing? What are the research papers that are missing? Uh, it's something where we've realized only recently that we're actually in a very good, posi- in a very good position to do that because we spend so much time mapping the knowledge space of a given topic, like I don't know, CO2 emissions that actually 
by the time we're able to write about it, we're also able to write about what we haven't found, mm. uh, what are the missing things, what particular PhD has ne never been written. Um, and so until recently, we basically just discarded that and never really told people about it. And now we've realized that also because of the, visi the visibility we have and the influence we have, we can, it's actually also useful to just tell people, hey, look, in the space of CO2 emissions, if you want to be impactful, you could do this particular PhD thesis. You could start this particular NGO. You could count this particular metric because no one has done that before. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, so I think this is kind of a low hanging fruit that we could start doing. Obviously, I think other institutions could start doing, like just letting the world know about what are the good things that could be could Yeah, be done. the knowledge gaps database. Yeah, yeah. See it now. exactly. That's great. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I should ask, any examples, like concrete examples that came to your mind? I think, uh, I don't know, ex I, I don't know the, the, the exact details of it, but I think my understanding is that when uh, my colleague, my colleague Saloni worked mm -hmm. on mental health, mm -hmm. she came back with this impression that, I mean, there's a few things to be said and like there's a few papers to look at, but what she explained to us is that everything she found was like 10 years old, pretty broad uh, or like pretty shady in terms of research methods. And that there seemed to be a huge space for data collection, data analysis, something that would provide solid, solid foundations for publishing the kind of entry we have. Um, but yeah, I think she was pretty disappointed in what she found. And my sense was that there was a lot of room for people working on what felt like much more systematic data collection, even, th even things like, what are the most common reasons why people are prescribed antidepressants? Mm. Like even a question as basic as this basically doesn't have a very good answer in the research literature, mm. uh, which is kind of mad because we have national healthcare systems and we should be able to pull something like this. Um, but apparently it's just not available. Yeah. I guess like one channel here is to, uh, you know, point this out to researchers and, and try to get, um, yeah, people motivated to work on these questions. Another thing that like our world and data seems to have like more recently done as well is kind of get involved in the like, if I can say so, like advocacy space, right? And like asking certain organizations to take action on this. Like the particular thing that comes to mind here is the uh, IEA and some of the like energy, uh, like data uh, sets and stuff. That, like I'm wondering, yeah, if you could maybe uh, tell us a bit more about that and also like, yeah, what a future here might might look like. Yeah, so the, the IEA is the International Energy Agency. And what happens there is that they, they've been publishing data for uh, several years now. Uh, the problem is that when the agency was set up by its constituent member countries, it was decided that the agency would have to be self-funded. Uh, and so the, the agency has to uh, generate money uh, to, to get its funding. And the, that means that all of the data that, the, the, that they publish is behind a paywall. Um, and so you have to, to pay a hefty cost to get access to it. And then once you get access to it, there are extremely severe restrictions on what you're allowed to publish publicly or to redistribute, which is basically you, can, you cannot redistribute anything and you have to be extremely mindful of what you publish. Uh, the problem is that this is all public money uh, and that it's extremely important data. And as long as it's not public, uh, especially in the space of energy, the main data set we have to rely on is the BP data set, which mm. when you think about it is, is a very ridiculous situation where to look at energy, uh, we have to trust and use the data of one of the biggest energy companies in the world that doesn't necessarily have the right incentives. Now, as far as we know, the BP data is very good. And so we've been using it, but there is something that feels very suboptimal there. Um, and so we started a campaign 
a few months ago to basically uh, advocate for the IEA to open up its data. Uh, also because the, I can't remember the exact number, but the funding gap was extremely small. We're talking about a few million dollars, uh, something that could be easily yeah. filled by countries. Um, and um, some people started supporting us. We got support from various NGOs and some journalists started writing about the issue. And recently uh, the director of the IEA announced that they would start efforts towards yeah. publishing that data in an open way uh, and to make the data completely available. It's not completely done yet, but I think right now it feels like unless they really go back on what they said, they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it feels like there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of ways that we could replicate that by using that leverage we have now that we're a little bit more famous and a little bit more visible to basically like kind of shame institutions into doing that. It's a little <laughs> bit of a strong word, but I think that's the idea. It's that idea of um, exposing the fact that some things don't work exactly the way we think they should work. And then in a constructive way, mm. um, making suggestions and recommendations as to what should happen. Uh, and I think that's a fine line to tread on. Um, I think it's definitely, we don't want to be, we don't want to be mocking institutions. Uh, most of these institutions, if not all, are doing the best they can with limited resources. For example, if, you, if we're talking specifically about the IEA, I don't think the IEA wants to be paywalling its data. I think it just has to because it has to generate money and it doesn't know how. And like, they're stuck in this situation. But I'm pretty sure if you, if you could ask every person working there, they would tell you that they would love to make that data accessible. And so I think the idea is to be a partner in that change and to kind of like have this complicated relationship between advocacy and partnership to like get those institutions to slowly change and like be forceful about it, but not, uh, not aggressive about it. Mm-hmm. It's a great example. I guess since we're talking about um, data sets which should exist or at least should exist more, one thing that comes to mind is um, uh, tracking conflict over human history. Yeah, I mean, the, the specific example you're talking about, uh, the idea of conflict and conflict deaths is a weird one where, yeah, like all of the counting that has been done has been done by individual people mm-hmm. who spend the, basically their entire career dedicated to this. Um, and it's very strange because obviously they've done the best they can, but they've come up with slightly different versions of it. And so actually we're working on, uh, a data set that is going to merge all of this, referring to the different sources and what people have, uh, estimated the casualties of each conflict to be. And we're going to try to make this visualizable and accessible in a way that makes sense. It's obviously very difficult because you've got thousands and thousands of these conflicts. They go from like one person killed to millions of people killed. Um, Some of them don't have quite the same definitions according to different countries that took part in the conflict and how they define themselves and whether they think it was a war or not. But yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to work on that. And it's a project we've just launched internally. Uh, and so, watch this space. Watch this space for something. <laughs> exclusive. Uh, probably next year. Cool. So, just zooming out, we were, at least a while ago, talking about our world and data's theory of change. I have just like a very vague, big question, which is how do you think about the value of just making the entire world just like a little bit more sane? Like, you just imagine that everyone gets to occasionally check in with our and data and just have a slightly better, higher resolution picture of just what's going on, broadly speaking, in the world. Um, that seems good to me, but like, how do we start thinking about how good? 
Yeah, I think that's exactly where we're at, <laughs> is that we, we definitely value it. And personally, it's something I value hugely. And I think it's one of the main things we do is make the world slightly more sane. Um, but as you said, like the problem is using that as a theory of change is difficult because yeah. it's hard to say exactly if you made the world more sane today uh, or if you didn't. Um, and so I think part of it is coming back to the idea of measuring what we do. Uh, but I think part of it is also accepting that if that's your goal, mm. then there's going to be broad meta ways that you can track this that are going to give you a general hint of whether you're achieving this. Mm. But other than that, you'll never get an actual metric of whether you made the world more safe. Yeah. Um, and I think that's frustrating and that's difficult, but I think it's also accepting that. Like, I think over time and given a big enough scale, it's extremely obvious that Wikipedia has made the world more sane. Yeah. Um, it's it's obvious to me that something like forecasting could make the world more sane. Maybe it hasn't yet, but it can. Um, and I think on something specific like COVID, I think, I think I would need to justify too much why Ovid has made the COVID situation more sane in some aspects. Mm. But it is true that on any given day, on any given article we publish in particular, it's very difficult to gauge exactly whether we've done that. Yeah, there's, there's something like kind of like nicely like ironic here about it's really hard to like quantify the impact of the quantifiers, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, th I think you can you could ask the same question about like any kind of newspaper. Right. Yeah. Is the is the New York Times making the world more sane? I mean, yes, obviously. I think over its history and even on any given day, I think it is. But like, if you stopped publishing it for a week. Yeah. Would the world go wrong? Obviously not. Uh, but yeah, so I think it's I think it's difficult, but it's this idea of the aggregated output is positive. Um, but yeah, any kind of thing related to epistemics is kind of hard to define in that way. It's worth doing. It's worth doing with made up statistics. Um, I'd love to see maybe even someone listening to this um, just trying out some Botex on just like how valuable is making the world more safe in various ways. And I'm sure there's creative ways of trying to put numbers on this, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think generally speaking, we, we've done that a little bit. Like at some point I had done some kind of Botech analysis of like how many millions of, how many lives was possibly saved by the vaccination campaign being a little bit faster by like I don't know, a couple of weeks right. maybe yeah. because of the country comparisons that happened in the EU. Um, and that came out to like a very nice number. So, right. you know, it, it was nice, but I think, this is doable because like, we know exactly how many people died every day because of this. We know exactly the dates and all that. Yeah. For example, one huge thing that's been very viral about our website is the article that my colleague Hannah Ritchie wrote about, uh, the several articles she wrote about uh, the impact of beef on CO2 emissions. And we know for a fact, because of just how many hundreds, if not thousands of times people have told us about this, that this is a very useful article. And possibly if we deleted that article today, that would be the most damaging thing we could do in terms of impact. But exactly how many people we convinced to stop eating beef? Who knows? Like, yeah. I, I just have no way to know that. Uh, you could potentially try to do a biotech for that, but I think like the uncertainty interval would be pretty, uh, pretty large. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. I'm a fan of at least trying to make guesses, even if it's very uncertain. No, no, um, I, I, I think, I think that would be good. I think that would be good, and obviously, I think it's, I think it's important to do it. Also, just to get a sense of whether what you're doing can have some kind of positive impact, or whether you should be spending your time doing something else. Um, let's talk a bit about EA. Is everyone at our world and data 
a card-carrying effective altruist? No, uh, I was going to say sadly not, but it's not, it's not sad. <laughs> I think I think it's I think it's actually important that not everyone at always is a, a card-carrying EA. Um, Ovid has a definitely some kind of relationship to EA, which is that it's definitely EA aligned in the things we talk about. Uh, there's a there's a, an idea that Ovid is also providing a lot of inputs for EA organizations and EA researchers and. I mean, it's not negligible how often we are cited on the A forum or like in newsletters or in articles. Uh, it's definitely something very visible. Uh, I, yeah, ideas are also feeding into always. Uh, I mean, our tagline is like working on the world's most important problems. So there's definitely that idea of like, what are them, so mm -hmm. those most important problems? Uh, but I think it's important to know that, you know, Ovid is not any organizations we were set up I mean, kind of at the same time that EA started, actually, but in a completely separate way. Um, and people's opinions on the team vary from just having heard about EA. I would be surprised if somebody had never heard about EA, just because I talk about it a lot. <laughs> um, and it can go all the way to like being somebody quite involved in the community, which is my case and the case of like a lot, of, a couple of other people on the team. Uh, but yeah, there's like all sorts of situations in between uh, on that kind of spectrum of involvement. Um, but yeah, definitely not everyone. With your EA cause prioritization hat on, I'm curious how you think about the value of putting together charts about problems which maybe don't rank in the kind of world's most pressing problems. I actually take it there are still really good reasons to present the data on those problems, but what are those reasons? Yeah, I, th I think the reason why we provide this data is that it's about providing the data. I think if it's about writing articles and things like this, this is where we kind of stop because it. if you take something like terrorism, uh, we might have a couple of old articles about it, but uh, we don't do that because we don't think it's worth spending a lot of time because the data shows us that it is not one of the world's most important problems. Uh, however, to be able to say that, you do need the data. Otherwise, <laughs> how possibly are you going to say that it's it's not? And it comes back to the value of comparisons, right? You yeah, need, exactly. Like, both sides of the comparison yeah, to make exactly. It. So we definitely do need to every year update our charts on terrorism because otherwise we won't be able to know exactly what to write articles about. EA researchers won't exactly be able to say that the dailies generated by terrorisms are much less or much more than the ones by malaria. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's it's something about providing an input. Um, and it's because of that, it's something we need to do. I mean, obviously, we don't venture, like you could justify going into every kind of data analysis because of that. You could write about sports or anything like that. But I think if, if you remain within some kind of reasonable circle of what could be potentially uh, useful, I think it's very, very important that OWID doesn't become data, but give us stuff, basically. Right, yeah. Like it's very important that OWID becomes, uh, stays something very broad that provides data about GDP and population and terrorism and natural disasters and if everything possibly that you can think of mm -hmm. that could be a candidate for an important problem. Yeah. And then it's everyone else's kind of job or opportunity to look at this data and decide what they think are important. Right. And presumably as well, like here for impact or something, the impact that our world and data would have is like some multiple of like how important it is to like make progress on this specific cause and like how impactful 
uh, creating these, maintaining these data sets is for this cause, right? Where like we were talking about like COVID before as well, which like maybe, right, like natural occurring pandemics isn't within the like, you know, normal EA canon um, of, of cause areas. But clearly here, having this data being available was like hugely impactful. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. And I think... I think there's also some like many ways in which we're impacting the world in ways that don't really necessarily qualify as like big an impact by an EA worldview, but that are still very important. Mm. Um, I think, for example, whether we impact people uh, by letting them know that nuclear energy tends to be safe and uh, and effective and efficient in terms of energy generation. Um, I think that's a good thing. Uh, whether it would qualify as a very important thing to say from an important view is probably not, unless we're talking about extreme climate change. But, but yeah, but I think it's it's still very important in terms of like helping governments make the right decisions, helping journalists talk about the issue in the right way, mm-hmm. helping citizens understand uh, the issue in the right way. I think it also comes back to the question you asked Finn about like making the world more sane. Um, it's this idea of, you know, there is some kind of intrinsic value in making people better informed about things. Um, And in the long run, if we want to avoid some kind of X risks or S risks possibly, then, then potentially there's like intrinsic value in making sure people in society are informed in the best possible way, even if that doesn't directly impact some kind of existential risks. I mean, I can think about this. Seems just really obvious to me that it's just generally useful just to know how kind of most parts of the world work yeah. without zooming in too quickly. Yeah, and and I think it, it yeah I think it's very important to like understand how the world works to build a worldview that's coherent and also theory of change that's coherent. Um, I think it also it's also good for the idea we all have that a lot of EAs idea a lot of EIDs might be wrong, mm. and yeah, that yeah, we yeah. might find out in a few years that you know we neglected something in particular. That I like, I think a good example for this is like education. We might find out in ten years that actually there's a growing consensus in EA that actually, on average, le- like striving towards better education of the population is actually a very impactful thing because it has indirect side effects onto many other existential risk problems. Um, and so, in that case, then it's going to be extremely useful to have good charts about education. And in the first place, I guess the only reason is that we're now have some idea of what problems seem especially important is because it's not because people are just started off really fanatical about them and succeeded in pushing for them it's because people were able to scan across the horizon of a number of problems and see the ones which having to stick out but only because they can make the comparisons to lots of other things right exactly yeah so i think yeah i think we see it as our responsibility to provide that input that fuel so that other people can later decide what they think given the, the the best evidence available are the most important problem. With, with all this um, in mind, you mentioned at the very top of this episode that one of the things that you're like currently stuck on is uh, thinking about like AI uh, visualizations and with that in mind as well, right? Like the kind of existential risk and, and long-termist dynamics here. I'm keen to like maybe delve in a bit more on, um, yeah, what our world and data for kind of long-termist cause areas um, would look like. Maybe starting off broadly there and then we can uh, maybe dig in uh, a bit more into specifics. I think the two big ones we we know we want to be working on and we've started kind of diving into are AI and pandemics. Um, I think the pandemic one feels pretty obvious because of the work we've done on COVID. Mm-hmm. I think we also are in a good place to talk about this without people questioning too much why we would be legitimate to talk about it. Um, I think it's a little bit more difficult for AI because of the stuff I mentioned at the start of like, yeah. it's 
I mean, for us, it seems pretty obvious. For most people, it seems pretty random. Uh, it seems pretty random that this website that has been talking about COVID and climate change and poverty would suddenly talk about something as specific as artificial intelligence. Um, and so we need to think carefully about how we want to approach this question. But yeah, I think something like uh, providing better data on things that we already write about, so things like nuclear weapons, for example, uh, also providing good data we don't have yet on bioweapons, on AI capacity, um, things like this is something we really want to be doing. Then there's the question of what is available. And the problem is that on most long-term stuff, there isn't actually that much data available because mm -hmm. it, it's more about potential technologies, about risks, about things like this. And so you can't really make a line chart of much at all, uh, like like bioweapons, like what exactly are you like? I mean, you could do stuff about like stockpiles of nuclear weapons and we have that, but like on most things like AI capacity, it's much more subtle than just tracking things over time. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of it is about writing and explaining to people why we think this is an important problem to worry about. Um, other things we're looking into, but that are difficult to explain are probabilistic measures and things like forecasts where Something like the forecast of an AGI uh, by Metaculus or the forecast of World War III is something that provides some kind of aggregate estimates of how close we're getting towards an event that could be mm. impacting the long-term future of humanity. Uh, the problem is then we get into this, the more epistemic question of like, how do you talk about forecasts? Like, what are these forecasts? And again, it's something where as people interested in EA and the EA space, we tend to forget that Websites like Metaculus, I mean, I, I, I know a lot of people at Metaculus, so I, I feel free to say that, but like, it, for people discovering them, they don't make any sense. Like, there's just a bunch of people with usernames uh, making forecasts without strong justifications for them. Um, and now, as, as people who are interested in the topic and who've read Tetlock and all that, we know what's behind it. Like, we know there's a lot of effort to build consistent forecasts through careful analysis and that people are judged through scores and through their track records and all that. But again, like it's something that needs to it be explained carefully. It goes back to your, your training analogy, right? Like yeah. a lot of people are at you know five stops down the line and you got to realize like there's a lot of stops on the way for understanding why this stuff is maybe yeah. paying attention and, to. Yeah, and almost every time I go to a near conference, people ask me like, why don't you embed Metaculous forecasts into your website? Mm. Like on your page about uh, nuclear weapons, why don't you embed a chart about like the chances of a nuclear weapon being used? And I think it's a relevant question, but I think it's like the, the, the big problem is that it, for most people who read our website, it would not make any sense. Right. It would feel completely out of context. Yeah. Like we're showing data about real life measures of things that have happened, like how many weapons have been stockpiled by, by countries. And it's very hard from there to just then like, like under that, uh, lower down the page to show a forecast made by unidentified people about the chances of these weapons being used. Right, yeah. I think it's it's somewhat different and much more easy for us to do when we're talking about a big institution. So like we show probabilistic forecast by the UN on population, for example. Mm -hmm. But population is much less contentious. It's much clearer exactly what these forecasts are based on. They're based on like current population and fertility rates and life expectancy. And it's much easier to explain. And people would know what the UN is. Like we don't need right, to explain yeah. that. Or they know what the IPCC is. So we also show scenarios by the IPCC. It's also like a data visual 
visualization question, right? Like, how yeah. do I show a line chart which is probabilistic in nature? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and you have this issue just even on the Metaculous website mm -hmm. where you've got the 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 median uh, forecast over time, and then lower down the page, you've got the probability distribution mm -hmm. of the current situation. And this is something that's super hard to explain to people if they don't know about forecasts. Like and sometimes you want to show the distribution over time, like how yeah, things exactly. change. Yeah, exactly. You and actually like, want things. If you had three dimensions, yeah. you can kind of do it. But it's exactly, like and it's extremely maybe. difficult to do. Uh, and something saying like the UN thinks there will be a little bit more than 10 billion people by the end of the century, that's okay. Uh, saying that a bunch of people who are good at forecasting, but we don't exactly know who they Trust are, yeah. think that there is a 5% chance that something might happen, yeah. but they also think that it like it has a 1% chance by some estimates and all that. And like it has changed by one percentage point over the last two months. Like this yeah, doesn't, yeah. This is extremely hard there, to describe. There is a like reasoning transparency point here as well, where I would want, right, somebody like inferring, you know, like AI X-Risk statistics and stuff from Metaculus to kind of like also be forced to go through the like reasoning transparency process of like, what is Phil Tedlock like forecasting? What is Metaculus? What caveats do I need to keep in mind here? And like, what biases might I need to like correct for? Like what epistemic certainty should I interpret this with? Which feels like, you know, especially when you're like producing things like for the internet and people will not read the like full article like in depth and often, right? Like um, just see the data and see the chart as well. It just like seems really difficult. Yeah, and it's something we've been discussing a lot with people, especially at Metaculous, it's the fact that I think one thing that would make it easier for us to use forecasts would be context. Uh, and the problem is that I think the current landscape of the forecasting space is very much focused on providing forecasts and like letting people actually do the forecast. Mm -hmm. But it's only recently that people have started to develop uh, analyses and like justification for these forecasts. So now there's a few newsletters of people who make forecasts and who try to say, okay, here's my thought process on why I think this comes down to 2%, or here's my thought process on why this has, I think AGI probability has gone up by 10%. And I think these actual analyses are what is useful. Um, the actual raw number, like the actual probability of like, I think there's a 35% chance that this happens. That's actually not as useful as the thought process of why you think his ha it has gone up recently. I often hear this around like Botex and stuff as well, right? That like a lot of the value you get is by like having to go through this process yeah. and make your yeah. model explicit, not the number at the end. And if it's just about sharing the number at the end, then and people just read that and take that away, yeah. then they're like actually missing the whole like value here. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think it's something where we, I think one of the early uh, uses we could find for forecast would be something like if Metaculous has a forecast of world population, by the end of the century, and it's significantly different from the UN one, then if we had on top of this a good and lengthy explanation by one of the forecasters of why they think the UN estimate is wrong, mm. I think that could be interesting. And I think people would be interested in that. And it would be easily justifiable for us to publish this on the website mm. and say, hey, we've shown these UN forecasts for a while now. Here's what other people think. And they think that the UN is wrong because, I don't know, because they overestimate fertility rate rebounds or something. One other thing I want to like throw in the mixer and, and, and see uh, like your reaction to it is like, I would love to see like more 
forecasting comparisons between like climate change and like the IPCC. I mean, like one thing to like say on the top, right, is like a lot of IPCC analysis are these like five representative frameworks, which they like very explicitly say is like not a probabilistic like assessment. And I think that like often gets like misinterpreted by like almost everyone, uh, like especially like, right, like lay people and like decision making uh, people who aren't like the IPCC authors uh, who are writing this like big disclaimer. Um, and yeah, like I would like love to see like that as well as like an opportunity, right, to like see how um, the forecasting community um, diverges on like really long timescales um, from uh, what is often like main, maybe like mainstream consensus or what are like IPCC like reference points where this probability distribution is like not set because the uh, like authors don't don't want their work to be interpreted in that way. Yeah, and I think maybe that's one of the limitations of having an in an institution that's so strong and so respected in that particular topic yeah. is that no one really feels like legitimate to provide alternative scenarios or alternative forecasts. Uh, and people tend to defer to the IPCC a lot, which I think is good overall. I think like like the net effect of that is extremely beneficial that people don't constantly like second guess the IPCC and that is considered to be uh, a source of truth in a way, or at least of very good scientific research. But I think, yeah, it definitely means that people who might produce estimates that significantly vary from what the IPCC scenarios say uh, or what they've kind of estimated to be likely, uh, they might be less willing to right. to publish that. Uh, or we, even as a world and data, might be less willing to compare them because the IPCC is considered to be such a strong institution. And, and also just to like, I guess, like frame this around like epistemic status, like my understanding at least is that like the reason that IPCC doesn't do probabilistic forecasts and uses these like five reference scenarios is because they don't think they can like hit their like level of scientific rigor yeah, yeah. when it comes to probabilistic forecasting that they don't want to like dilute the like other science that they do where they're able to like make much more confident guesses. But that, in my mind, that just creates this like big gap where like, yeah, yeah I want to know the probability distribution, yeah, yeah, yeah. not five reference scenarios. And like, can somebody please forecast this? And I know this is like a live metaculous question, but when I looked into it, there were like two and there was like maybe 2,000 and like right like anonymous like internet guesses when i just think this is like such a thing that like deserves more attention yeah definitely i think it's very important i think um i've seen quite a, a few ea reports try to do that especially trying to estimate the what is the current probability of something like a six plus degree yeah. scenario um but yeah i think obviously if that was directly given by the ipcc that would be pretty amazing yeah so zooming out one thing i was wondering about is what it might look like to have some kind of world dashboard for, um, you know, what the key metrics for figuring out whether the world seems to be headed on a really, you know, great trajectory for future generations, or maybe things are looking a little uh, shakier. So maybe one question there is like, what do you imagine being on this kind of dashboard? Let's say there's like 10 different, you know, indicators and the needles move backwards and forwards um, each month or each, or each year. What are those indicators yeah. in your mind? I think if we if we kind of um, if we kind of forget about the whole discussion we just had about how do you explain things to people and all that, and we just kind of take the metrics we would want to use, um, I think I would definitely include a bit of all the risks we think are facing uh, humanity is facing. So things like um, nuclear weapons stockpile. Um, some kind of estimates of the probability of a nuclear war happening, um, things on AI capability, things on uh, greenhouse gases, concentration in the atmosphere, bioweapons, uh, all that. I think there on that particular dashboard you, you imagined, I think having forecasts would be very useful because I think they are a type of aggregate measure mm -hmm. that takes into account 
all of these different metrics, but also the kind of like media discourse and what's happening around the world. And it's kind of like churning all that uh, by using some kind of like giant Bayesian process of like, what does that, what does that all mean? And like, is this going up or is this going down? And I think if, when forecasting is done well by enough forecasters who update regularly enough, I think that's the output you're getting is like some kind of measure of are things becoming more dangerous or less dangerous. And so I would want to have that on the dashboard. Um, and I think then what I would want, and I don't think it exists, would be something like the doomsday clock, but in a way that would be, that would feel more rigorous. Mm. Uh, <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, I like, I think it's like, like have, if we had an aggregate metric of like, even if it's questionable, even if people could like criticize it and think that it should be improved in some way, I think even some kind of attempt to have an index of like, is the world through a very, like, I don't know, through 30 different metrics, is the world uh, becoming safer or more dangerous in the last six months? I think that would be extremely useful. And it obviously feels like right now, whenever the doomsday clock is updated, it feels like because of the way it's being framed and the way it's being presented, it can always go up. I would be surprised in the next few years if it went down. When actually, if you if you made it as an aggregate metric based on real life metrics, I think it would be legitimate for it to sometimes go down slightly mm -hmm. um, by a few seconds. But I think because yeah, because of the way it exists and the way it, the the reason it was created, I don't think it's likely to actually go down. Uh, so yeah, I think I would be I would be really keen to have some something like that on the dashboard. That's a great idea. I mean, to be clear, I think the bulletin of Deterrent sciences are really doing amazing things, but I guess I kind of conceptualized the doomsday clock as more of a kind of, I don't know, like art project or advocacy project yeah. where it's at least it wasn't really set up to kind of track in some granular way what's actually going on in the world. Um, which is, it's fine, but something which does do that seems really And, and it's interesting well. because when you go on the website of the Bolton, they have a dashboard of data mm -hmm. and that dashboard of data has components metrics. Like they have uh, a bar chart of nuclear weapons over time. They have something about nuclear material stored. They have sea level rise. They have carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Um, they have temperature differences over time. And so that gives you a sense that they are using those kind of metrics to think about the world and how it's evolving. Right, yeah. But then it's quite obvious that when they gather to decide what to do with the clock, they don't actually churn the numbers. They don't use those numbers to define that, you know, it should go by up by 3.4 seconds because of these metrics. They just kind of discuss it. I don't know exactly how, and they decide how much to yeah. go. And so they reset it regularly as well. So it's not like it's actually yeah. going backwards and forwards kind of unpredictably. I'm keen to like maybe kind of revisit the question of like what metrics we might add to this like idealized uh, dashboard a little bit and like especially setting aside the like our world and data kind of constraints right and maybe thinking what like listeners or like what other people um, might be keen to do like what one area here that like strikes me as particularly relevant is like AI capability so I know there have been like um, like some new attempts at this as well so um, I don't know if you're familiar with I think it's pronounced epoch I don't epoch, yeah, epoch yeah, yeah. Um, around like you know tracking flops and stuff like over time um, you you know, you might also consider like, um, I think like CSET has done some of this work in the space of like tracking like military R&D spend um, on AI. Are there any other like particular metrics that you want to like maybe shout out as, um, yeah, like this could be cool for like someone to, to do and track? Yeah, I think I think the stuff that Epoch has been doing is extremely useful. And, and we have already published several charts with that data uh, because I think it's, it's, it was thoroughly needed and, and it's very good that they're doing it. 
I think the, the limitation with it is obviously that it's very difficult to explain uh, exactly what this is. Like to most people, the idea of flops and, you know, number of parameters and size of the model, that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Like it's extremely, like it has a lot of assumptions built in that you that you can be okay with if you already know what you're looking at, if you already know about AI, and then it's a very good way to keep track of the situation. But if you don't know any of this, uh, it's actually quite a terrible chart to show people. Like <laughs> if I showed this to people around me or like to my parents to tell them about AI trends, they it would be like a, a very bad way of introducing to this introducing them to the topic. Um, so I think things that and so because because this is difficult on the other side of the ai thing we tend to fall back to things that are too simple mm. like number of papers in conferences right. uh, which feel like somewhat interesting heuristics of like what's happening like proxy metrics of the situation but i mean obviously it's it's pretty obvious to everyone that the number of papers in a conference doesn't really directly tell you about what's happening in terms of AI safety like it's it's just it's just satisfactory at best yeah. uh, and we use that as a proxy but we want something better and so I think if people could come up with something in between something that would somehow describe AI capability over time through some kind of AGI lens of like how is how are the best models doing over time in terms of their combined capacity to understand images, produce speech, mm. uh, produce video, beat us at games yeah. and all of that combined and how, and like, or pass a Turing test. Um, and like all of that combined, how has it gone up over time and how close are we to something that would be complete? And obviously what I'm describing is almost impossible to do, I think, <laughs> but if people could try and get closer to that, I think that would be very useful. Well, I guess this is what AI benchmarks exist for to some extent is trying to compare some common sense capability across different models. So, you know, ImageNet for classifying images and, um, I mean, the Turing test in some sense is a kind of informal benchmark for like conversational ability. Maybe we should try coming up with new, there's a benchmark for like truthfulness, truthful Mm. QA, Um, maybe coming up with new benchmarks which can scale to like really advanced systems and maybe also just tracking the existing benchmarks, right? Um, and and kind of presenting them because I don't really have a good picture for like progress over time on any of these things. Yeah, and I think I think something that would be a combined benchmark of what we define to be AGI would be good. Something that would combine like like I don't know yearly competition where people right, could yeah. submit models that would be that would need to pass a Turing test plus <laughs> play a bunch of games plus uh, pass successfully a math like a high school math exam or something like that. And then we would see the combined output of these models uh, for this competition. I think that would be interesting because mm. I think that's what we're getting to when we talk about AGI is like something that would be broadly speaking intelligent. Um, and I think again, like if you talk about things like benchmark for ImageNet or something like that, sure, it's interesting. But again, like it's difficult to explain to people who don't know about AI what an ImageNet benchmark is like right, it's it's yeah. quite it's quite tough like yeah. it's, do, it's doable but it feels like you're providing part of the answer but that you're really giving them something very partial i just thinking out loud i, I wonder like how much of this is like you know uh, trying to relay to people like what the underlying metric is versus the like maybe more like 
general lesson of trying to help people internalize what like super linear trends or like even exponential trends are like what it just like really means for something to like suddenly right like be this good at chess like one day and then like you know, 10x that good at chess like in a year's time or something um where it's not even right about like you know it's good at chess and therefore like transformative ai or something it's just like these things can like improve like really really quickly um and if we then consider like something else replacing this metric maybe it's just about like really internalizing what like yeah exponentials or or stuff yeah. are. and i think i think in this way the the very big benefit of what epoch is doing is that they update the data very frequently uh, and that if we're talking about tracking the capacity of ai in a very short time frame that's very useful because even if we had this kind of yearly competition of ai generalized benchmark uh, we would have results late and again if we go back to that right, idea of yeah. like time frames and reacting quickly if something happens then i think it's useful to keep track of like you know, the, I don't know, the model published by Meta last week and how many parameters it used and how this has gone up by like another order, order of magnitude compared to six months ago. And I think that's very useful. And I think we should keep doing that. Yeah, just to shift topic slightly, I guess. Another thing I was wondering about was whether you've thought at Auden Data about um, tracking attitudes to various big issues, um, maybe looking at survey data and how um, attitudes change over different rounds of surveys. Yeah, it's definitely another thing we've been thinking about, especially in the context of long-termism. Mm. Um, because of the lack of real-time and real-life data, uh, it feels like surveys could be a very interesting way to at least track something mm. in terms of how often are people hearing about a particular issue? Are they aware that it's being researched? Are they aware that it might be a problem? So if you talk about something like AI safety, having a sense of over time whether people know about the issue, care about the issue, think the issue should deserve, like, deserves more money, for example, that would be very interesting. So yeah, we, we've been thinking about surveys. The problem is again, that like, there's very little data about this, even, even just the surveys. So like there was a recent uh, YouGov survey about what people think should be, could be existential risk for humanity. Be I think that, out. yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, and I think, I think that result was actually interesting because it shows that Actually, the, some of the rest of the answers were pretty good and pretty interesting and like kind of matched some of the things we think and some, some of them were completely different. Um, but I think it would be interesting. But again, just that was like one survey in isolation. Um, so you could produce a bar chart, but obviously what would be interesting would be a panel survey every six months or every year, same people being asked again and again, like, what do you think about AI? And if it goes up, then it could provide some kind of evidence that efforts to make people more aware of the dangers of AI is working, are working. Yeah, like I'm, I'm wondering like how much of this is like, as you were saying, like I think it's like less about like making data accessible than it is about like in some ways like narrative, right? Or like explaining concepts and uh, like models and stuff here. And like, yeah, like how much of this then becomes about like creating these um, you know, like useful memes or something of a sort. Again, like to make kind of everything about climate change a little bit. I'm thinking here of like, you know, the IEA graph of like solar uh, power prices like decreasing versus like the IEA forecast each year is like um, probably like really wonky. And if I try to like explain like in detail or something, uh, you know, to, to my parents or something like what's going on here. And that kind of almost misses the point where like, I think the graph or something by itself is like a really powerful like narrative tool. And you don't have to understand like all the details of like what rights law is, like what solar power prices mean in turn for, uh, you know, like combating climate change and, uh, you know, different technologies and hedging all that. It's just like, it's a powerful graph. And um, yeah, like thinking like what other like stories you might be able to capture here and like AI 
AI or in bio, um, kind of like data tracking aside and more on this like narrative element is, is maybe, yeah, like more kind of interesting box here. I th I, yeah, I think that's an interesting way to think about it, a way that we would use data to provide evidence, but also just to capture an idea of, mm. yeah, for example, the fact that in the last few decades, AI systems have become much more, like much better at winning games over human beings. And you don't necessarily need to provide the ELO ratings of chess computers over time to do that, because as you said, like that, like then you need to explain chess and ELO and, yeah. and like exactly how it works and why is it going up and how is it, how is it performing? But what you could do would be to provide, yeah, like a, a bigger set of charts that maybe you would compare AI to humans over like 16 different games and then you would just do a four by four chart right. with small multiples where you would even try to like label necessarily the Y axis. You would just like, it might be a common measure. It might be different measures, but you would do small multiples of like in every single of these 16 games, AI has become stronger than humans. In some ways that like reminds me of the like, our world and data mean, which I probably see the most, which is like things are getting better over time. Yeah. And like, here are these like, yeah, 16 graphs of like things that were previously red are now green. And it doesn't matter, right? Like what infant mortality or what life expectancy or what, you know, the poverty line or something. It's, it's just like things are going green and the world is getting exactly, better. Exactly. Yeah. And I, think, I mean, obviously for that chart, there is a label and it's like a simplified version of it, which is the world has a hundred people. Right, but like, yeah. obviously like, in some way, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a good idea, but we could remove that label. We could we could remove the axis, right, yeah. and we could just say like, look, three of them are going up, three of them are going down. The world is getting better. I mean, yeah, definitely part part of the power is that like if you were to scrutinize any of the sixteen graphs, you would find a lot of like rigor and like evidence exactly. and yeah. stuff here as well. So I understand why it doesn't like maybe fully translate, but I think there is something here to like um, thinking about this through the like sense of like explaining a narrative versus the like you know yeah. trying to like explain like data and methodology here that I still think is like something to it. Yeah. And actually Max Rosa did that a few, just a few days ago where he produced a new chart about decoupling, decoupling between right, uh, yeah. GDP growth and CO2 emissions. And what he did was that he, he selected a bunch of countries and uh, initially, he just told this about this this to me today. He initially had plotted the actual GDP and the actual CO2 emissions, but then he realized that actually uh, it kind of makes the story more complex because then you've got some countries where maybe there's like a bunch of spikes because right, some yeah. something has happened and that has made GDP go up and down. And so it makes the story less clear. And so what he's done in the final version is that he made it a slope chart where mm -hmm. things are just shown in terms of like the percentage, the percentage change between last year and 1990, for, for example. Right. And so it's just like, for every one of those countries, it's like one line going up as an arrow, which is showing the GDP change over those 30 years, and then one arrow going down, which is showing the CO2 emissions change over 30 years. Right. And it's not necessarily trying to like, show all the complexity of what's happened in every single one of these years, but it's just showing, hey, over 30 years, all of these countries have managed to grow their GDP, but to shrink their CO2 emissions. I've seen so many things, yeah, like struggle by not zooming out and doing the 30 year comparison, like reading way too much into like when the data set ends, which currently at the moment is 2021 and hence like the COVID recession and hence like emissions going down. And so many like academic papers I've like dug into have like just their significance is just like screwed up by like using 2021 as an endpoint and comparing it to like 2015 or like 2016 yeah. or something. It's, it's, a, it's a something we've been struggling with 
also because institutions are struggling with it. Yeah. Like there's a bunch of data set right now where we're still waiting for the latest version because the latest version includes the pandemic. Right, yeah, yeah. And so they've, they've been taking months to publish them. Like most recently um, in July, we finally had the latest update of the UN population data, mm. but it took them an extra year to publish it because obviously it's very hard. You don't just extrapolate as you as they usually did. Like they had to like to subtract the number of people who die from COVID. Mm -hmm. So like life expectancy went down in almost every country. Uh, way fewer people, like way more people died, and so the 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 population difference from one year to the next was much lower than it usually is, uh, or much higher for people where for countries where the population is shrinking. And so we have the same thing right now for the global burden of disease study, where we've been waiting for. More, I think more than a year now for yeah. the, the latest version and it was supposed to be kind of this summer and now we kind of doubt that it's going to be this year because and not because they're like you know they, they, they do, they're doing their best it's just extremely hard to factor in into your model that kind of event of a pandemic that has never happened before yeah. and and yeah it's extremely tough and obviously um, I kind of wish them the best of luck with that. <laughs> uh, but yeah we're waiting for the data and as soon as it's there we will show it but in the meantime I can imagine how like extremely difficult of an, of an effort it must be. Yeah. Ed I'm curious just putting aside specific examples we've been talking about are there any ideas for data visualizations or graphs which you'd really love to see, but maybe they just aren't such a great fit for our data because they're a bit too, you know, creative or artistic or weird or editorial or anything like that. Yeah, I, I don't necessarily have specific ideas, but I think as a as a broad point, I think it's it's very good that a lot of media outlets are trying to make those visualizations that just would not make much sense as OED visualizations. So we tend to think of our added value as like providing stuff that is quite standardized. Uh, basically, most of it looks like a bar chart or line chart or map, or sometimes a scatter plot. Mm -hmm. And we think our added value is to make sure it's clean, accurate, up-to-date, and that there's good context and like a good title, a good subtitle, and that's basically it. And like we try to do that in the best possible way. What that means is that we never spend time building very customized, complex visualizations of things. And it's not because we don't think they're valuable, it's just because we think our value lies in, in, in the systematic stuff. But so for example, uh, something we really liked, like something I really liked recently was the Financial Times feature on space debris and space pollution, which was this crazily complicated feature with like 3D graphics mm -hmm. showing space debris around the planet. Yeah. and. And, and I, I've, I don't think I've, I've seen something as fancy as that in a few months or even a few years. But I think it w I thought it was extremely good because it gave a very good sense of, you know, what are what is the problem there? Um, it was extremely beautiful, uh, extremely well done. The, I, to, to me, the limitation of that is that I don't think the, f the FT has a plan to update that, mm. uh, which is not necessarily that big of a problem for space debris because that the, the particular description of the problem is going to stay current for another few years. But probably the total number shown are going to go up uh, by another few orders of magnitude in a few <laughs> years, and then that article will be out of date. And generally speaking, we try to provide what other institutions and media outlets tend to uh, neglect, which is things that are, are maybe less uh, less nice to the eye, uh, less sexy, but that we make sure we can update on a timely basis. Um, I think also things that would be similar would be heavily customizable scenarios on climate change where people could like explore 
data, but also kind of like use sliders, for example, where they would change different assumptions about what happens uh, or like policies that are implemented to try and get a sense of how this could play out in terms of uh, climate change effects. I think that would be extremely good and I would like to see that. Um, things that would also be heavily customized to give people a general sense of time and space mm. uh, are good. Um, I think uh, I think it's something that's very difficult to do. Uh, Kurzgesagt published uh, an app that uh, tries to give people a sense of like how things compare in space. Uh, and I think for obvious reasons, for long-termism, doing that over time would be a yeah, very good idea. idea. And I don't think you have this idea. And I think it's a very good idea and I don't exactly know how this should be done. Um, I really like, by the way, I don't, I don't think it's available anywhere online, but at EAG Prague, there was this film that was shown where they tried to do exactly this, where each sequence of time was like one order of magnitude of time. Mm. And so it started at the Big Bang and then it would slowly compress time up to the point where the last couple of minutes of the film were real-time footage of the drinks just before the film was shown and like like showing people getting into the theater to look at the film uh, and then finally a shootage of like us watching the film wow. uh, and i thought that was really good um and i think more experiments like this to give people a sense of how big time is and obviously trying to do that for the future as well could be could be very good yeah awesome like i said i think this is a really great idea um finn do you want to like say some of your ideas maybe maybe on this as well not to bring you in spot, like you can, you can um skip. i mean not especially different from what i was talking about but i think maybe just the core idea here is being able to start like ed said on kind of familiar time scales mm -hmm. time scales of days or years and then you can zoom out to time scales of centuries where we see like major historical events and then you keep zooming out and you keep zooming out and you keep zooming out and after a while of zooming, you see just about the point where, you know, Earth stops becoming habitable. Yeah. We could live that long, really feasibly. And then you keep zooming out and maybe kind of, you know, your finger gets tired from scrolling and you see um, this is where the last stars begin to form or eventually burn out. And just seeing the like incredible differences in just like order of magnitudes of time. I know I've, I can imagine that being quite kind of powerful and affecting Honestly, one problem is that if you just look at the numbers, especially on the kind of size of the future, it's so long that you just have to scroll for so long. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you, you get to you get to a problem like you'd have to make it interesting, and so right. the, yeah, yeah. the user experience like, at some point get a bit going. stuck into yeah. like you need to zoom out for like yeah one minute entirely <laughs> to to get to an order of magnitude yeah. where something has. But to there's be so set. many amazing like precedents for this. So there's. Uh, there's a video called Powers of Ten from the 70s, yeah. which is... This is really good. Yeah, so it starts with someone's eye, and then it's like a camera zooming out, they're lying on like a field of grass, and it zooms out to the entire Earth, and then even like through our solar system and the universe. There's also like a time-lapse of the universe, like video, um, which I'm sure is Googleable. The Stockholm Metro, Anders was telling me this, mm. has a kind of like evolution timeline, which you see when you're in the like train in oh, the tunnel, cool. and you like kind of drive past history, which is really cool maybe just to like add I think like one of the like challenges that it seems like here right is to like keep people's attention for that long or to make it interesting that long like I kind of want like a visualization that like just like doesn't compromise with that like the thought I have here in like mind is this like you know push notification where you get like uh you know you, you don't zoom out to like log scale or like orders of magnitude or something but it's just like an incredibly like long time over which these like push notifications get sent so that like when I'm 80 and I'm like on my deathbed that's when I get the like push notification that like the last human has like now died <laughs> and uh, then <laughs>
getting a feel for how log scales translate to linear scales is just like really important across a bunch of contexts. And a way to do this is like, here's how long something would take. Here's how long it would take if it was two orders of magnitude longer. <laughs> and you just have to wait that long to see. Um, uh, I think another great example I forgot to mention is Carl Sagan's idea of a cosmic calendar, an episode of his show Cosmos. You know, you imagine the history of the universe from the Big Bang to the present day as a calendar year. And you can ask what happens at different dates in this year, right? If you scale all of history down into a single year. And of course, the punchline is that, you know, everything happens in the last five minutes before mm. um, New Year's celebrations, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but just like, ah, I really love these analogies. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, think, I, I think that's an important point because we tend to use log then to like solve this question of like, mm. it's not possible to wait for the actual amount of time to show things. So like, yeah, we go up by powers of 10 or we go down by powers of 10. But I think, yeah, I think there's something strong to all show things in the actual scale they have. Like yeah. one typical thing that people do when they learn astronomy is to like, is to like represent the solar system in its actual scale by using yeah. like a grain of sand for like yeah. a given planet. And then one person from the classroom has to go to the other side of the school to like represent the oh, distance yeah, to yeah. this planet. And like, I think that's really good because it doesn't compromise on the scale. And it shows you that things are just like mind boggling. <laughs> Some big. things are really big. Yeah. yeah, people I guess listening can Google uh, if the moon were only one pixel which is exactly the thing you mentioned, but just on your browser where you just scroll to the right. Oh yeah, until... I remember that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah see, nice. yeah, this, I, I remember this being like almost ludicrous to the amount of time you had to spend like brow, like just right. scrolling through the page. But I think yeah. it's a good example of like, yeah, yeah, you have to scroll a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> we should also maybe plug the like long now clock uh, as well. Right, have you heard of this ad? No, I don't think so. So the long now foundation, Stuart Brand. Yeah. Um, you know, interested in various kind of advocacy and art projects around just understanding ourselves as situated in very long time scales. So for instance, they write out dates as zero 2022, right? Because of course it might go above um, uh, four figures. The big art project is an enormous clock in a mountain in a desert in Texas called the Clock of the Long Now. And I don't know the exact details, but it like, you know, chimes every decade or something like that. It's great. <laughs> it's worth Googling. I like it. I'm looking at it now. It's, it's pretty cool. I, I like this idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do a pilgrimage sometime. Okay, cool. Let's press on then. One thing I was curious to talk about is transparency. Um, all the data our one data relies on, it's all public. It's on GitHub. It's open source. Presumably this is actually just, you know, it requires a lot of effort on your part to maintain all that. Um, so I kind of wanted to just ask, um, where does the value of transparency come from? Like, I think everyone agrees it's just like, it's really great, but let's like zoom in onto the kind of concrete reasons for, for being transparent. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think there's a few, uh, there's a few strong reasons to favor that. Um, and all of them have been pretty obvious during the COVID period. The first one is that as soon as you're being transparent, you allow people to contribute. Um, if things are closed or behind a paywall or just not public, people are basically uh, facing a complete impossibility to contribute to your data. Um, and so I think in this way, because for COVID we needed people to provide us with numbers, like the, the first few weeks of the, of the vaccination data collection was mostly me getting emails and comments and tweets from people sending me numbers from their country 
and telling me, oh, it was just announced that 11,000 people had been vaccinated. Um, and if like without this kind of contribution, I would have been incapable of doing this because that was done in like dozens of different languages in countries I have no idea like where, like what kind of media I can trust and things like that. So that was very useful. Another thing of transparency um, is it means there are always extra pairs of eyes checking what you do, which can sound like a bad idea or something not really desirable. But I think for when you when you work on something that's quite impactful and you wanna make sure that what you're doing is right, it can sound a little bit stressful at first to put your code online and your data online and have people double guess everything you do. But it's like, to me, it felt really reassuring. Like again, during that period where I was doing all the vaccination counting, it would have been much more stressful for me to make the whole process secret and then just kind of like spit out numbers uh, and ask people to trust me. The fact that all of the code was online and all the processing was online means that yes, sometimes people told me like, hey, I think what you did here is wrong and it maybe it was wrong and I fixed it, but that felt much more reassuring than mm. trying to do all of it on my own and telling people to trust me. It also means that sometimes when people do accuse me of having done something wrong or having changed the numbers or something because I'm, I'm pro-vaccination or something, uh, it also means that when you do something like GitHub, you have a permanent track record of all the changes you've ever made to the data and to the code, which is very useful because that means you can go back to like any point in time and show people how the data used to look, when it has changed, what has made it change, like what line of code is responsible for the change. Uh, and that's like, it has rarely been useful, but when it when it is useful, it's very useful. It's very useful to kind of prove people that no, you haven't cheated on the numbers. You haven't changed anything to look to, in a particular way. Uh, you've just kind of like imported the data again and it looks different from the hour before, for example. Uh, and so these are kind of like all strong reasons to I think favor transparency. The last one is more like, performative, I think it's the idea of, let's be honest, 99, more than 99% of people who browse our world in data will not check the data. They will not check the code. They will not open GitHub in any sort of way, but there's something very strong in letting them know they can, uh, even if they don't, uh, the fact that they know they could possibly, they wanted to double check what we did and double guess our assumptions, uh, lets them know that we're the kind of organization that is open and that doesn't try to hide anything. Yeah, it's like a signal of trustworthiness. Yeah, it's right? it's purely a signal. And even if, again, it's not used that much, uh, people trust that signal. Whereas if something is like hidden behind closed doors, it kind of signals that maybe you have something a little fishy there. Yeah, I guess it's like if a magician is doing a trick and he's like, hey, would you like to shuffle the cards before I do this trick? And even if you don't, take the option to shuffle the cards. It's like a signal that, mm, yeah, I like that. It would exactly. have worked. Yeah, yeah, it yeah, it's very similar to this. And I think some of the institutions that have been struggling with criticism of their methods, and I think that the global burden of disease studies, particularly in that, in that mm. situation, I think part of it comes from actual problems in the data, but also part of it comes from the lack of clear explanation of some of the methods they use. And like it, it has also happened with like COVID estimates of some institutions where they've churned out forecasts of COVID cases and they didn't make the code available in any sort of way. And so I think when that happens, it's much more easy for people to think, okay, this is where not only do the results look weird, but they don't want to make the code available. Yeah. And this is really not a good signal. Well, you, you can also just imagine, right, that like 
um, you would want to fix something like kind of as criticisms get pointed out or as feedback kind of comes in rather than to like let it all build up and then suddenly it's too much and then you need to throw your whole model out and like start yeah. all over again. Yeah, I think it's all, yeah, it also relates to the kind of time frame that these institutions are working on. Um, I don't think it's necessarily good that these big data sets are published every two years mm. with like a huge release update every two years. And that if something goes wrong during that update, then that mistake is going to be there for another two years. Yeah. Like we just found out yesterday a small problem with like one of the population estimates for like the tiny territory of St. Martin that belongs to the Netherlands. And it's not a big deal. Like it's, uh, it's a few thousand people, maybe I'm not sure. But yeah, there's a big problem in the estimates where they're basically showing that on the entire island, no one is uh, aged, um, no one is in their 30s. Like everyone is like either a child or older than 40. Um, and it's obviously, it's obviously a mistake. And <laughs> the problem is we, we asked them and they told us like, yeah, we, we found out about the mistake uh, and it's going to be corrected in 2024 when the nice update is done. Uh, <laughs> which again is like something that would never happen in any kind of open source model where we would just ship an update uh, yeah. within the next day or something to fix the mistake yeah. here. Uh, because the whole process is kind of non, not done in, a, in an open source iterative way. Uh, we rely on like kind of the, the old way of doing things. Yeah, I guess thinking about open source software again, it's kind of cool that as well as being, you know, more democratic and um, legible, um, scrutable in many ways, open source software is often just like better in virtue of being open source, like it's often more stable, um, often, you know, more trustworthy and so on. Which I guess prompts this question, which is, how could other EA orgs maybe take on this lesson about transparency, concretely speaking? Yeah, it's something that I think EA organizations should do more of. Um, one limitation of that is that because I've never worked in those organizations, <laughs> and it's, it, it hasn't been exactly clear to me how much of it is really an opportunity. Uh, recently, in the last few months, I talked to some people at OpenField, at GiveWell, uh, at other organizations, trying to understand whether they have data sets that could be published, whether they have code that could be published. Um, some people told me that I'm kind of overestimating the amount of code that there is or like of data that is being used and that is mostly spreadsheets and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and the problem is that I think spreadsheets are on average a good thing. I think there's a big trade-off because initially I thought, okay, I mean, my advice should be that they should get rid of the spreadsheets and replace it with code because code is more transparent. And the problem of a spreadsheet is that it's very good to show transparency, but it's very bad at tracing back what you did. Yeah. Like when you land on a GiveWell spreadsheet, it's extremely difficult to actually understand because you start clicking on cells and seeing how they relate to one another. Yeah. But like, it's very hard to exp to understand what they did from the first one. Like it's, it, you have to kind of like, everything is interconnected and it's very difficult. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe if code was used, then it would be much simpler to just see linearly, like, okay, there's this assumption first, and then it's multiplied by this, and then it's multiplied by that. Um, the problem is then there's a huge trade-off because there are millions of people who know how to use a spreadsheet, and there's like a fraction of those who know how to use code. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think there's like very good arguments for making things available in spreadsheets rather than code. Yeah. 
There's something like really interesting kind of like of a fundamental difference here between like spreadsheets and code, right? Whereas as you kind of said, like when you're reading code, you're like literally reading through the methodology. Yeah, like bit exactly. by bit what is yeah. happening versus like on a spreadsheet, like every cell is a result. And there's like a core kind of difference here and like um yeah, like how people can like interpret or engage with it. Yeah. Yeah. When when I land on a spreadsheet, even a very good one. I feel like I need to reverse engineer what happened. Mm. Uh, I need to trace back the thought process of the people who made it. When I open a piece of code, I'm not reverse engineering. I'm just reading what they decided to do line by line in the exact order that they decided to do it. So I think as, a, as an instrument of transparency, I think code is much better than a spreadsheet. But you don't, you don't just need to think about the, the kind of like transparency. You also need to think about the number of people that are impacted by this transparency. Right. And in that regard, a spreadsheet is like many, many times better than code. Yeah. Uh, and if GiveWell was just publishing the analysis as like R files or Python scripts, I think that would be a bad idea. Yeah. yeah. And like in an ideal world, right? Like part of me thinks of like, why can't you have both? Or at least like, you know, on the GiveWell level where there's like a single like analysis or something, right? Like you kind of want to have like the fancier code, which also lets you do things like probability, like distributions and yeah. stuff like that. But then also have this like spreadsheet as more of like a layperson thing where yeah. like maybe the only thing you are interested in is like the central estimate, but like, um, yeah, kind of having both. Like, or things which look a bit like code with the power of spreadsheets or spreadsheets which are as structured and legible and linear as code. So guesstimate being an example of a second thing and then another project from Query which I'm very excited about which is Squiggle, this kind yeah. of, I guess it's like a programming language for making estimations um, where you have a lot of the kind of tools that you come that come in a spreadsheet but like just in a language. Yeah, it's a bit of a catch-22, right? Where you could like also imagine like, you know, millions of people know Excel uh, or like tens of million people know Excel. Millions of people maybe know uh, like R and Python and like maybe a hundred people. <laughs> um, Soon a million. But, yeah, I'm sure. To come. I mean, this is also like, yeah, just talking about like tangents or something. Like why isn't that more popular like in right? banking yeah. or in consulting and stuff, right? Like this still really gets to me of, um, yeah, like things like Estimate or, or things like, like Squiggle. Yeah, and I think some kind of software that would try to bridge that gap and provide both a spreadsheet view of things with the underlying code behind it for people who want to write to read the code. I think that would be that would be extremely good because the fact that spreadsheets are better leads people to use spreadsheets and not code, which I think is good. But that means that they never publish code, which I think hides some of the assumptions. Um, and also, so part of it is also that I think when EA organizations use code, which as far as I understand is still the case sometimes, I think they should publish it. Yeah, right. And the problem is that never happens uh, because, and this is like not so much an EA thing, it's just a research thing in general. Yeah. Most researchers hate publishing their code because they think it looks bad, uh, which is it sometimes does, uh, but I think yeah, that's okay. Yeah. And I think we should also kind of cultivate a culture of making it okay to publish code, even if it's not like the most beautiful piece of code in the world. Right. Um, whereas right now, I feel like a researcher, if they've produced a piece of analysis, they feel like to be able to to publish the code, they would need to spend another couple of days yeah. cleaning it, polishing it, documenting it. And so the problem is they need to get onto the next one. Yeah. Uh, and so they don't take those couple of days. And so that piece of code never gets published. And so, we get to a situation where if you want to know exactly how they did it, you need to email them. They need to get back to you. They need to send you the file and maybe they procrastinate because again, they think they need to clean it. And so in the end, you're not even quite sure if you're going to get that code. Um, so I think, I think it's important that people 
start publishing those pieces of code. Again, with this idea that there's a good chance it's never going to be read anyway. Like it's again what I was saying about yeah. people usually not checking anyway. And I think it's good if like one person next year wants to read your code, and maybe they're going to make an effort, uh, an extra effort to read it because you haven't made it like super beautiful and super well commented. But I think it's better than not publishing anything right. under yeah. the excuse of oh, it's not perfect. And, and on the face of it, this feels like such a core part of reasoning transparency, which a lot of uh, like, right, EA organizations champion and which you've spoken with with Michael Ed at, like, at length about uh, famously. And right, it kind of comes to, to what you were saying earlier as well, that like um, you, you know, if you're trying to make the world better and you're wrong, you want to know that you're wrong and you want to be kind of corrected. Yeah. Uh, and you know, that, that's kind of like what matters at the end of the day. And it's important to spell out assumptions and make things legible. And, yeah. um, and, and I think that feeds into the idea of like, what would happen if everything was code? Mm -hmm. uh, if everything was code, that means that e-organizations could publish those analyses and then other people externally could read them and create what we call pull requests, which are mm. requests to change the code. And they could say, okay, on line 18, you've made the assumption that you should multiply this by 4.5, but I think it's closer to 5.2. And, and they could justify why. And then when the EA organization would maybe validate that change, mm. then the whole pipeline could be run instantly, assuming that change. Um, and the whole report could be published again without having to rewrite anything yeah. because the report would be produced using something like R Markdown or Jupyter Notebooks. And I'm describing a world that is quite different from the way that things are currently done, but it's not that far off. Like yeah, yeah. publishing reports in Jupyter Notebooks is actually something yeah. that yeah. a lot of researchers do routinely. Right, yeah. And it's just, I think you kind of need to get to that point of like making it systematic, maybe some organizations doing it so that other ones look a little bit bad if they don't. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, that's, I think that's really important. Like for example, right now, as far as I know, Rethink Priorities is the only e-organization that has a GitHub repo. Mm -hmm. uh, and I I mean, I looked at for like six months ago, so maybe it has changed a little bit, but I couldn't find any official repo for like yeah. OpenFill, GiveWell. Or it's it's so doable, right? I mean, I guess, Luca, you can speak to this. You've been thinking about questions like the social cost of carbon. These are questions which involve lots of complicated inputs, lots of complicated ways of combining them and thinking about them and often injecting, you know, guesswork where it's hard to find yeah, hard yeah. evidence. But then there is a bottom line number. And you can imagine if, you know, someone was hosting their attempt at this, a problem like this on GitHub, it's maybe like, or maybe it's like a yeah, Jupyter notebook. You go through, you see, oh, you know, I kind of maybe disagree with this, this estimate, this discount rate, this right, input. Yeah. I yeah. plug in my numbers. Let me make a pull request on your thing. Yeah, Here's yeah. how it's different. Here's how we get a different answer. Yeah, I think I think it, what one way to frame it is that it's not just about the tool of GitHub and like using it to publish stuff, but it's also about the culture around it. Like that culture of pull requests, of writing down issues, of forking a repo to like create a copy of it for yourself and like doing something slightly different right, with yeah. it. Um, it's that whole idea of reusing people's code, reusing people's data to improve upon it and like improve improve code usually, but here it would be improving knowledge right, and, yeah. and basically building upon other people's work. And, and there's like an informative value here as well, right? Of like, if you let people play around with your assumptions, which you flagged as like, very sensitive or like very cruxy or something than like getting somebody to see, right? Like, oh, if I change this by like yeah. half X yeah, like or two X or something. Analysis, yeah. Oh, wow, like the bottom line is super sensitive to that, right? Yeah. And I, I feel like that is like often a really like just informative lesson that, that you kind of get by. And, and in some way you kind of like, if you do that properly, you're kind of offloading work from yourself because 
when you do it in a closed way, you're going to publish your analysis and then you're going to get like 20 different comments asking you to, to do some kind of sensitivity analysis. They're going to yeah. ask you like, have you changed this? Have you tried changing that? And what does it do? Like, yeah. and then you have to like, you're basically creating work for yourself by having to do those analyses yourself. Whereas if your report came with a piece of code on GitHub, people could fork it yeah. and actually change the value themselves and see for themselves whether it changes anything. Probably not all of these 20 people would do it, but at least some of them would. And you would kind of like, yeah, make your make your life a little bit easier. I'm curious what you would make of like maybe some like EA specific um, objections to making everything transparent or making everything code. So one of like the reasons here might be that um, a lot of these like analysis stuff is just kind of sensitive, right? Like you know the term info hazard like often gets like thrown around uh, like in the bio space, but. Um, Right, like you, you could like to, uh, totally imagine. Sorry, that makes it like seem trivial. Uh, you know, in, in in biosecurity, right, the term like info hazard like often captures like this idea that there is just like um, some information or some analysis that you just don't want to make available. And then, especially within like a lot of like EA organizations, it's often around like grant making, and that also involves like personal relationships and like right, kind of putting numbers to uh, you know organization specific like attributes or stuff that you maybe don't want to make transparent or explicit. Um, yeah, like how would you yeah think about like incorporating some of these like like concerns or something. I think like it's that. definitely an important part of the problem. And I think if you were doing some kind of biosecurity analysis, mm -hmm. maybe you wouldn't want all of the uh, assumptions to be made public or like all of the information you have, because I don't know, maybe you got some piece of information from someone at the, like in the government yeah. and you don't want to make them available. So I think there's definitely an argument for high, like removing some of the analysis steps, but I think you should then you should do it that way. You should start from a standard of right, transparency. The default, yeah. the default should be transparency. The default should be, let's show all the steps. And then when you think you're in a particular situation where there might be an info hazard uh, or might be something where it's easier or it's better to kind of hide it away, then you can hide it away specifically for that. Mm -hmm. But currently we're in the opposite situation where the default is to not publish really anything. And sometimes through extra effort, like publish a piece of code right. or like send it by email to someone who's requesting it to you. Um, but yeah, I think we should just kind of like reverse the situation <laughs> and, and, and still be flexible from there. Yeah. Nice. Let's talk about data journalism. Um, obviously, our and data is focused on just publishing, you know, objective data. And the idea is that people can make their own minds up about um, the upshots and what they can take from it. You can imagine other things which are more kind of editorial, more just like advocating for <laughs> what seems important. Um, and, you know, you get this ideas floating around occasionally of what if there could just be a new site that is just really kind of squarely focused on which big picture stories in the world do actually seem like the most important? And can we communicate them in a really kind of data oriented um, way? I'm curious if like you've thought about that, whether you think it's been tried, um, whether it could just happen, or maybe there's just some reason why like no one will be interested in that. I think it could, and I think there's space for it, and I think ideally I would want somebody to do it. Uh, <laughs> the reason for that is that we sometimes find ourselves in a situation where we don't publish stuff because we know it's going to be out of date soon. Mm. Like when the when the war in Ukraine started, we were very tempted to start writing short blog posts explaining stuff through data. But then that kind of contradicts our general idea of making OID an evergreen website, mm -hmm. kind of like Wikipedia where things, where you don't stumble on outdated stuff. Yeah. That's kind of a, a thing we wanna, we wanna go towards, like making sure that we don't have dark, out of date corners of the right, website yeah. that people can find and like have very old data. 
but that's our stuff. But I, I, there's completely a big space for making the opposite decision of like writing daily articles about stuff happening in the world, not necessarily trying to update them regularly, mm -hmm. uh, but just making them a, about inf important stuff happening. Uh, but doing that through a lens of like OWID type analysis. I think some of these elements exist. Uh, what I'm describing looks a lot like some of what Vox is trying to do, mm. uh, a lot like what 538 is trying to do. Uh, especially I think 538 is very close to what I'm describing, except that I think the selection of subjects on 538 doesn't look like what we want to achieve. Mm. Uh, they are very focused on short-term stuff, whether it's like, like quote unquote like important stuff like politics like political campaigns or like maybe a little bit more trivial things like sports um, but I think something that would take the topic selection of OWID and the way of going about treating it of 538 I think that would be extremely good mm. the closest thing I know is what people at the FT and The Economist have been doing recently. Uh, I really find that in the last couple of years, especially because of COVID, but also on other topics, uh, the Financial Times data team and The Economist data team have been doing really, really new stuff about like how to deal with something like the Ukraine war or how to deal with COVID or how to go about talking about like, I don't know, some kind of fi like financial crisis, for example, mm. and doing that through the careful use of data, by doing some novel data analysis, not just spinning out something that's already been done. Uh, and they have great people doing that internally. And I have hope that maybe the way to go about doing this is not so much setting up a new website, but taking a newspaper that has strong legitimacy and somewhat stable funding mm -hmm. already and creating a team within that that has the power and freedom to do that kind of analysis. Yeah, cool, cool. I, I'm sure actually there's lots of established journalists who'd be really excited to do this kind of work <laughs> and it feels like it's not for want of talented journalists yeah it's probably not for want of resources and probably not for want of demand like this is probably i, no. I would enjoy reading it i mean yeah, i'm a yeah. nerd but it's kind of feels like some coordination failure or something where it hasn't been tried so maybe there's some hesitancy about being a first mover but i don't know Seems i think there's a little bit of that uh i think what's also coming out now is this idea of like making it as i said making it part of something that's already working well mm -hmm. uh, i think uh it's it's somewhat similar to future perfect and like yeah. if somebody had tried to build a specific media uh, publication that whose name was Future Perfect, that was completely detached, that needed its own, its own funding, its own team, its own journalist, its own admin team. Possibly that would have failed because maybe there wasn't space for just that. Mm -hmm. Maybe you need to make it part of something that already exists. And maybe the, 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 the reason why the FT data team has been able to do that is that they are part of the FT. And so the FT yeah. gets money from advertising because they write about yeah. tons of other stuff about politics and finance and leisure stuff and travel and and like they can get their funding through that and then when they get into a stable enough situation they can say okay you know what um you and a bunch of other people are going to create a small five-person team to write the best possible data oriented analysis on current events and we don't really care if you generate a lot of traffic we just want you to try and do that the best possible way mm. One thing I want to give a, a quick shout out to as well, if we're talking about like data and news, is the Tim Hartford like more or less podcast as well. Um, I mean, it's less about like visualizing data, right? It's a, it's a podcast or a radio show kind of in, in format, so it's not quite possible. But they do write a great job of like 
picking some of the like main numbers that come out like every week uh, to week and thinking about like, yeah, giving context on like where this number comes from and what the methodology is there. And maybe that's also like another thing, right? To consider of like, oh, what would that look like with more of an EA flavor of like, yeah. not just picking the headlines that are like in the news because other newspapers are talking about them, but like selectively picking up a number and then giving the context of like how it got produced or what the yeah. methodology behind it. Free podcast idea. That sounds yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you're down there, I'd love to chat about your own career for a bit. Sure. Um, maybe one question is just, what does Ed's early career look like? And how are you imagining that it would turn out back then? I certainly did not think I would be doing what I do now. Uh, so yeah, just kind of like to kind of trace it back. Uh, I kind of had a few bumps in the road. I mean, all of them looks like potentially successful path. It's just that I didn't like a bunch of them. Um, I initially studied at Sciences Po in Paris, which is roughly an equivalent of a typical Oxbridge PPE program, both in the sense of like, it's the same kind of stuff you study when you're there, but also in the sense of like the prestige around it, both in the positive way of like, your parents are very happy if you, if you get into that, <laughs> but also in the negative sense of like, it's considered quite elitist and a little bit arrogant uh, to have done this. And people don't necessarily always see it in a, in a, in a good light. Uh, so I did that. And then uh, I think when I joined, when I when I got into this uh, university, what I mostly wanted to do, I think back then, I mean, I was 17, was to be a journalist, I think, uh, like international reporter or something, which is the kind of thing you, you think you're going to be doing when you're 17. Um, and obviously, when you once you start learning about things, uh, that kind of idea also uh, translates into like an unstable job and like a precarious situation. And I mean, maybe it's also something you realize you're not that interested in doing. Um, so when I got at the end of my, uh, bachelor, I just, I realized that actually I was more interested in doing more technical work. And I think for some reason at the time, maybe just path dependency, it didn't feel like the right time to leave that university to get a different master's. So I sticked with the list of masters available at the time and I studied marketing, mm -hmm. uh, which was at the time because there was some specialization in digital marketing inside uh -huh. it, uh -huh. felt like the closest possible thing to like <laughs> a computer science degree, <laughs> which let me tell you, did not happen because obviously uh, just because you do a digital marketing MSc doesn't give you computer science uh, skills. Uh, so yeah, I was pretty disappointed by that. Um, I, I, I did work in marketing and especially uh, social media marketing and comms for a few years, which was interesting in many ways. And it's taught me a lot about uh, communication and like social media and how to grab people's attention and how to publish something that looks interesting which, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but it's actually something I end up using now uh, yeah. a little bit. So it's actually been interesting now. But yeah, after a few years in marketing and comms, I realized that was not for me. And so at that point, I decided to kind of start from scratch and learn data science. Uh, and thankfully at the time, that was kind of the golden age of yeah. online courses and Coursera and edX and all that. Uh, it was like 2014 around that time and everything was free. You didn't have to pay for anything and you had basically the best university in the world rushing into those websites uh, to make their courses available for free. Mm -hmm. It's quite different now. You often need to pay, but at the time it was kind of a gold mine. Yeah. Um, Wait, why did this happen? Why were universities just throwing out their courses? Uh, because it was like the phase of like everybody was talking about MOOCs and online courses. And right, like, oh, yeah. we need to do that. And there was kind of, yeah, like a, a race for the university that would provide most like the most like the highest number of free courses online right. <laughs> for the best possible quality and none of them thought about really doing it like making people pay for it yeah, uh, yeah. and that just lasted for maybe 
a couple of years at best. Then they started like saying, oh, actually, if you want a certificate, you need to pay like 100, 100 quid or something. Uh, and that's the situation now where you can just audit those courses and not do the uh, exams and you don't get the certificate. Right. But at the time, you could get everything for free. But still like 100 quid for a certificate versus... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think it's still very good. And I think it's still very useful that I often advise people to do is to look into those kind of online courses. Uh, but yeah, and not only was that the golden age of online courses, but it was also the golden age of data science. And so within those online courses, the one thing that was everywhere was machine learning, data science, uh, and AI. And so I thought, hey, that looks cool. It kind of it kind of also sounded appealing because I realized that the few things I liked about the marketing thing I was doing was uh, when clients would ask for a report in a spreadsheet, and mm. I, I actually enjoyed doing that. <laughs> and so I thought, hey, maybe I could tr give it a go to this um, data science stuff. And so I started learning online, like, dozens of online courses uh and i basically spent my evenings and weekends doing that um yeah and then the kind of big jump was getting a job from there which is difficult because especially at the time people didn't really like online courses that they really yeah. sound like a serious thing that people should be doing um so at the time uh i moved to oxford with my ex-partner uh and so i had to find a job uh, and so I applied for a job at the university uh, to do data science for public health. Uh, and through, I think, a lot of like open-mindedness of the people I was interviewed by, mm -hmm. uh, and also me highlighting some things more than others on my CV, <laughs> <laughs> I was able to get that job. Um, I think it's uh, it's not it's not so much about lying. It's about like getting through that barrier that some people might have about. Like I knew I could do all of this stuff because I had done it repeatedly in courses. Yeah. But it's just some people don't really like the idea of doing it through courses. Yeah. And so if you say you've done it in your previous job, and then they give you the test because you've said that, and through the test you actually make it and you give a great and like the output of the test is great, then they trust you. But if you had said, oh, I've only ever done online courses, maybe they had they would have stopped there and not given right. you the test. Yeah. Did you try to like build a portfolio as well once you're doing the courses? Yeah, so, so I think what, what would have been better and what yeah. I advise people now <laughs> is not so much to polish and highlight uh, some things on your CV is to actually build a portfolio, which I think is a much better, more like a much more legitimate way of doing it is like, while you do these online courses uh, to find a question or a topic you're interested in mm. and start doing smaller piece of analysis so that when you apply for a job, you don't just have the exercise of your courses to show, but you also have some like personal piece of analysis, even if it's small and like not super ambitious, but you can show that, hey, I try to analyze like the CO2 emissions of various types of food and I made this report and I published it on a blog. And I did that for like a few other pieces of analysis and I published like six different articles or something. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if somebody comes to me with this kind of like portfolio right now, I would be extremely interested. And obviously I would look at the quality of what they did and, and whether it's actually interesting and insightful, but the fact that they did it would convince me that they are somebody who might be a good fit to work at OWID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know of instances where EA orgs have been in a position where they could make someone an offer, not because they have, not just because they have, you know, impressive credentials or anything, but because they have done online courses and taken the initiative to just put together some projects on their own steam. And maybe it's like little bits of analysis, like you said. Yeah. Um, and they didn't plug into anything bigger, those little projects, but just the fact that they have like gone out and like done these things on their own accord just like shows so much, shows that they're capable of doing it, but also shows that like they have the drive to do it themselves so like yeah it seems great. and i think that drive aspect is really important to, to highlight it's because 
when you do these things, I remember thinking like, oh, but what, what could I possibly write about that would be insightful? I'm, I'm just somebody learning. I'm not going to write anything world-changing, um, so therefore I should not write about it. And again, like the point you made about drive is important. When I, when I look at this portfolio, I'm not expecting to read something that will change my mind about some like issue in an incredible way. I mean, these are students. Like, I, I expect to see something that tells me that they are really interested in doing some kind of OIT style analysis of the world right, yeah. and they are capable of finding the motivation and they have the skills to do it. Um, I don't expect that they magically found some crazy piece of analysis that no one has ever thought of. Yeah. But when you're a student and you do it, you kind of weirdly think that way. You think like, oh, I need to find like a very original piece of research. And it's not the case. Yeah, like um, zooming out and when we're thinking about what makes for like a good like research oriented like data scientist, can you talk about like some other skills that you think are like relatively or uh, skills or attributes that you think are like relatively overrated or, or underrated? Yeah. Um, I think at least for the people I tend to hire on my team, um, I think of something as overrated. I think people tend to think that you need a PhD to get into our world in data. That's not really the case. <laughs> uh, it probably is the case for the research team where you would need to either to have one or to be on your way to get one. It would be surprising if we hired somebody who didn't have one at all. Mm. Uh, but for the data team, uh, that's really not a thing you need to have. Another thing is lots of programming languages. Uh, when people start learning how to program, they hear about all sorts of languages and they start building this idea that they need to like know three, four, five of them. Mm. It's really not the case. Uh, for me, it's much more useful to hire someone who knows one language really well, and especially if it's Python, rather than someone who knows like three of them in a way that's not really useful because they need to constantly check what they're doing. Um, another thing, and it's an important one because we, I keep telling to people like, if you're gonna join us, make sure you don't care about that, is machine learning, AI, cloud stuff, anything super fancy that most people when they study data science are interested in and excited about, we don't do any of that. Like, I never run any kind of machine learning model. I don't use any kind of fancy AI, cloud-driven model service. Like I used to do that in previous jobs and that was very interesting, but most of the work we do at OED in the data team is importing CSV files. Some of them are big, most of them are small, uh, and we clean them and we reshape them. We harmonize country names, uh, we check the units, we change a few things, we divide by population, and then we output another CSV and then we make pretty charts with it. Um, I'm simplifying, but it's basically the case. And so I think somebody who would be really excited to do some kind of like statistical inference or like like modeling of projections or forecasts or like, yeah, just like anything that sounds a lot more like actual statistics or machine learning, I think they would be probably pretty quickly disappointed by what we do. What about the skills that people are potentially underrating if they're aiming at a research-oriented data science career? I think uh, everything that's underrated is the stuff that's hard to describe, but that we right. need uh, <laughs> as part of our team. Um, it's also something that when I joined, I didn't really know that it was even a skill, but then I found out through various people I've hired or not hired that there is this intrinsic quality that some people have, which is a mix between knowledge of the research space and how to do research and thoughtful decision-making. Um, and it's something like, Say you're facing with a situation where you compare two different data sets of CO2 emissions over time, 
and you have to stitch them together to get a complete time series. But then there's a weird break in the series between the two data sets and they look completely different for a few years. What do you do? And like some people will have pretty good ideas about what to do, maybe want to, what to look for in terms of problems, look at the methods, maybe reconcile what they did or, or any kind of th thing that would explain what happened here. Some people will be completely puzzled and have no idea how to process. Mm -hmm. And they will either be stuck or they will make a decision that's extremely bad. Like maybe they will remove all of these years or maybe they will just like choose one of them without even looking into what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and that kind of like thoughtful decision-making is usually what you get once you've done research. Um, and so if, you, if you've done a master thesis or PhD thesis, usually you get, you slowly over time, you build that sense of like thoughtful trade-offs, thoughtful decision-making. The problem is for the data team in particular, um, we, we're looking for people who also program extremely well. And so it's, it's, it's a tough ask to ask to, to be looking for people who are very good programmers, but who also have knowledge of research and experience in research. Mm -hmm. um, so usually like the best people we have on the team are people who did a PhD, got all of that knowledge and background knowledge of research, know how to do research really well. And then they found out during their research, during their PhD, that A, they didn't want to stay in academia and B, that they liked coding more than research. Mm -hmm. And these are the perfect people for me because they have everything I'm looking for. But obviously, like what I just listed is a very specific situation. Yeah. And there are very few people who are exactly like that. Yeah. Um, what about when it comes to data visualization in particular? Are there any just useful concepts that you've picked up about what separates, you know, really great data visualization from kind of mediocre, confusing stuff? Yeah, I think, I think in general, uh, the kind of reference that everyone likes to give is Edward Tufte, uh, who's kind of the, the, the main person who's been researching this and writing about this for, for a very long time. And um, one concept I like, for example, that I learned from him is the concept of data ink ratio. It's this idea that you should uh, maximize the amount of information given for and minimize the amount of ink that you use. And by ink, he obviously means it in, in a very old fashioned way where you would print the charts. But it's this idea that you should always question, uh, especially when you produce a chart with a default setting in a programming language, do I need those axes? Do I need those ticks? Do I need all this fancy stuff like that's kind of hiding away the information? Do I need a fancy background? Mm -hmm. um, and actually you find out that if you remove a lot of this stuff, your graph is still legible. Mm -hmm. um, you should stop when you actually start removing actual information, but you should really think carefully about each of these different pieces of ink that you put on the chart and think, do people actually need this or am I just showing this because it's typically part of a chart? Right. A silly question, when should you use an area chart versus a like line graph? Uh, I think that comes down to, that comes down very often to just getting used to it. Yeah. Uh, I think like <laughs> once you've done Instinct. this enough, oh, it, makes, it just makes complete sense. Um, but that brings me to my kind of like the next thing I was going to say, which is I think the main thing for me that has made it easier to become better at it is getting feedback. Yeah. Um, what we usually do internally at OWID is that if someone tries to make a chart that's a little bit difficult to make because it's trying to convey a difficult point, mm -hmm. then they make like three or four different versions of it. Like they make four drafts and then they we just 
they just put it on Slack and ask everyone, like, what do you think? Like, which one is the best? Mm -hmm. Which one is, like, sending you down a path where you actually misunderstand what I was trying to say? Which one has good elements that maybe you wouldn't have thought of, but actually it kind of, like, highlights a specific part of the argument I'm trying to make? And then we kind of, like, mix them together, taking the best of each version and try to turn them into something that, that really works. Mm -hmm. I think too many people kind of skip the feedback phase and they just kind of, like, you know, produce charts, uh, many of them, and they just kind of publish them and don't really try to get a sense of how the people who saw these charts actually understood the problem and understood what they were trying to say. Yeah. Even just from a design perspective, what's your favorite OWID chart? So actually from a design perspective, none of them are like particularly crazily ambitious. Uh, we try to stick to line charts, bar charts, very simple stuff. One of the ones I like the best, probably because it's been the most uh, successful ones and the most viral one, maybe, is the um, is the chart we have that Hannah made on uh, greenhouse gas emissions across the supply chain. So this is a bar chart that basically shows for each animal or each type of meat, uh, an animal product, um, the bar chart of like all of the greenhouse gas emissions that are produced by it across things like the farm the processing, the transport, the packaging, and all that. Uh, and it's a very simple chart. It's a bar chart. Uh, you know, there's nothing particularly fancy about it. But the way it's presented has meant that this has been, I think this has been the chart that I've come across the most time randomly outside of our world in data, seeing people who just copied it into books, into articles, into their blogs, onto social media, mm -hmm. uh, because they just found it to be extremely useful. Um, another one, I think, is the... Again, by Hannah, uh, I think she makes really good charts overall. Is uh, her charts on the opportunity costs of diet changes? So there's this idea of very often when people talk about the impact on greenhouse greenhouse gas emission of cutting out meat, the only thing they mention is the amount of emissions uh, produced through, uh, for example, the production of beef. And because of that, they tend to, uh, to underestimate what would happen if we got rid of beef, because not only would all the beef start, stop emitting, especially methane, but also we would, we would kind of like, we would be able to reuse the land that's currently used for beef production, mm. and we would be able to regrow uh, forests uh, on that land. And actually most of the effects of cutting out beef would come from that opportunity cost of being able to regrow forests on these lands. Right, right. And so you end up in a situation where she has this chart that shows that, for example, if you cut out uh, beef, lamb, and dairy, you would cut out 4.6 gigatons of CO2 equivalents. But then on top of these 4.6, you would have 7.7 .7 right, gigatons right. just to, to be being able to put to put back vegetation on these lands. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing. And she makes this clear through some kind of like inverted bar charts that goes from the center to the Super left cool. to show subtracting emissions. And I think that's really cool. And it's conveying a point that's extremely important that too many people tend to neglect. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll link it in the write-up. But I'm also curious, uh, outside of our world and data, are there any data visualizations that you kind of want to flag or uh, yeah. highlight? Um, here again, I'll, I'll kind of like, make it a little bit different by not citing one of these crazy like visualizations with all yeah. sorts of colors that people like to mention sometimes. Um, I like them, but I think um, they tend to be a little bit uh, overplayed. I think what I really like is 
when people try to produce something that is actually usable, that is updatable, and that is impactful at the same time. So for example, I think a, a very good example of this is the Economist's uh, dashboard on excess mortality during the pandemic. Um, it does have interesting use of graphics. There's like some heat maps in there, mm -hmm. some small multiples. So it's not like this is completely boring from a graphic point of view, but it's also not exactly like the craziest visualization in the world. But I think ultimately, it's extremely useful and impactful because it's easy to understand, it's easy to use, it's, they didn't make it a one-off effort that they published and then never updated again. Mm -hmm. They updated every week. And I think ultimately that kind of visualization ends up being much more beneficial for the world rather than something crazy with like all sorts of different arrows and like a yeah, static yeah. visualization that kind of is, looks sexy at first and people are like, oh wow, this was, this was incredibly well-made and all that. But actually it's a little bit difficult to understand. And then because it's a static thing made of Photoshop or Illustrator, people just never update it. And so it becomes out of date after a few months. Right. Um, what about most underrated chart on the website, on the Alden Data website? I think, um, I think one of the most underrated ones might be because it's so simple. It's um, some of Max's charts about income distributions. So in particular, there's this chart about uh, living standards, uh, comparing the income distribution of two different countries. So one example on the website is like, Max made this chart with the income distribution of Ethiopia, uh, and then next to it, the income distribution of Denmark. And the point he made in that article is that really when you're looking at income inequality, it doesn't really matter first and foremost where you are within a country or like if you're poor or rich in a country, but it matters basically where you're born. Mm -hmm. And that a rich person in Ethiopia will struggle to be richer than a poor person in Denmark yeah. uh, because the income, the income distributions basically almost don't overlap. Um, and if you look at that chart, it's basically very boring. It's like two income district, like two probability distributions like next back. to one another. Yeah, it looks like a camelback, and there's there's very little information, but it conveys something extremely important about the state of the world. Something that I think a lot of people neglect. Uh, a lot of people tend to think that you know one of the most important problems in the world is like income inequality within countries, and mm. it's definitely a huge problem and, and something we should we should work on, but. I think a lot of people tend to not realize how much of a difference it makes right, just yeah. where you're born and the fact that even the most successful person in some country will struggle to 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 make it to make ends meet compared to like somebody uh, not doing so well in a in a rich country. Yeah, it's almost like an order of magnitude point kind of yeah, again, yeah, right? Of like internalizing just how big uh, like differences can be. Yeah, Lou, do you have a favorite? I want to do this. Um, so I got like sniped very early by our world and data with like a lot of the like econ history things. Like I thought it was so cool just like getting to like really like uh, zoom back. So a lot of the like early like GDP and yeah. like industrial revolution like uh, texts and stuff I really enjoyed. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Finn? Um, I thought when Ed was speaking of this graph, which I just found, and the title is yearly number of animals slaughtered for meat in the world. And again, there's really just one point you draw from it when you look at it which is if the thing you care about is the number of animals killed, the problem of animals being slaughtered is the problem of chickens being slaughtered. Yeah. 70 billion chickens, the next biggest number is um, under 2 billion, which is pigs. Yeah. And it's like such a striking graph and it's so striking because it's like visual. It's like, yeah. yeah. It's like kind of a tangent, but is there a graph with like fish and stuff on that as well? It's actually, unfortunately, no. And no. so... Okay. 
I mean, you could probably look up what number of fishes I would expect that it might be. So, because I've like vaguely looked into this like a little bit. Um, like I think one of the like problems here is that like fish almost always get measured in tons rather than like oh. a number of animals. Yeah. Versus chickens get measured in. Um, yeah, in actual animals. In actual yeah. units. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. really hard to compare. Well, I can tell you that fishcount.org.uk estimates up just under two hundred billion farmed fish. Wow. But anyway, yeah. yeah. <laughs> fish and chicken. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, cool. So just returning to your own career, Ed, I realize um, we never really asked, are there any meta lessons that you've taken from such a varied career? Yeah, I think I think one of them is that um, obviously it is difficult to switch between careers, but I think on average people tend to overstate how difficult it is. Um, I think obviously for some things like if you want to become a medical doctor you probably should choose that pretty early on and yeah. it's kind of a bad idea to, to decide that when you're 30. <laughs> but for most things especially things that a lot of people in ea and long-termism are interested in it is i think broadly true that you can pick it up in less than two years mm. um, and it's something that people tend to be really scared of and like be skeptical when people say oh no ai safety is a recent field you could learn quickly and people tend to be dismissive of that i think it is actually true like i think some things are very difficult like if you wanted to make impactful research in quantum physics again mm. <laughs> probably good to decide this early on uh, and it's kind of a tall order to decide to do this later on but uh, learning about the current state of AI safety is, I think, I mean, again, I, I might be, I might be overplaying it because I've never <laughs> done it, but I think if I did, if I currently decided to do that, I would be pretty confident that under two years of work, I could actually catch up uh, regardless of what I did previously. Another thing is again, from an EA perspective, to try not to be too attached to one's professional identity. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get a little bit stuck with that idea of like, I'm a researcher or I'm a journalist mm -hmm. or something like that. And they get this sense of like, I want to be the person I thought I would be, I, I was going to be. Um, and I think what's helped me in changing those kind of careers has been to try and think, okay, regardless of what I thought I would be doing at that age, regardless of what I think would be cool, um, what can be what can be impactful and what could I possibly learn now? Right, yeah. It's like kind of sunk cost fallacy as applied to yeah, your career. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it's sunk cost fallacy both in the terms of like what you've studied and how many years you spent mm. doing it, but also it's sunk cost fallacy in terms of like emotional attachment yeah, and yeah, how yeah, like maybe. the kind of daydreaming you do. And like, if I had been stuck to that, for example, I think there, there would have been a version of me that would have refuse to do data analysis because like the ideal version of me would be Einstein. Like I would be like right. somebody who would actually discover stuff about yeah. the world and who, I don't know, might get a Nobel prize for it. I like the chances of me getting a Nobel prize for what I do at 08 are basically non-existent because it's not really stuff that is being like valued by the research world in the same way that a, a sheer discovery might be. Uh, but I think like when you ask yourself what might be actually impactful, you realize that actually doing the work that we do at 08 is, is very impactful. Any other meta lessons? Yeah, I think um, for me specifically, the the idea of like using an opportunity that's being given to you to have impact, even if it feels a bit risky, is something you should definitely consider. I think obviously you should make sure that you have somewhat of a safe environment around you and that you're not jumping into the deep end. But so when I was working in data science and I wasn't exactly sure how to be impactful and I was doing mostly consultant work and COVID hits and then 
I basically uh, got in touch with Max Rosa and asked him like, is there any way I can help? And he said, sure, you can help us with like the testing data that we're mm -hmm. trying to collect. And it felt like a big risk because I didn't know anything about that. I already had a job, so it meant kind of like helping them on top of that. Uh, but I took that risk and maybe it could have not played out in any particularly significant way, but I did that. And for a few months I had to like do two jobs at the same time, but I think that was, that was useful. And I think I, I don't know if I would have realized later on, but if I had not taken that opportunity, I think that would have been a, a like a really big waste for me. Uh, and actually linked to that, I think another lesson is that throughout all these changes, it's been reassuring for me to have what ATK often calls a plan Z, mm -hmm. which is this idea of like knowing what you're good at and or at least what people think you're good at. And like having at the back of your mind that if everything else goes wrong, you can always go back to doing that thing. Yeah. So like for me, if I don't know, if oh, it stopped or I was fired or something <laughs> terrible happened, yeah. I know I could basically go back to data science consultant work. Mm. I would not be happy to do that, and like, but it would pay the bills and it would kind of work. And I know I could probably somewhat easily get hired because I've done it in the past. Mm -hmm. And I think for a lot of people, it's good to have this because having the knowledge of that kind of frees you up in terms of stress and pressure to maybe try other stuff that's a little bit more ambitious. I was gonna ask, so like kind of, I guess like with that, uh, like spirit in mind, like what's next for you and our world in data? I think now at our world and data went entering into a phase where uh, a lot of the stuff that's been that's been on our mind in the last couple of years is slowly fading into the background, especially COVID. Um, so now we're getting back into the fundamentals of like, first of all, catching up on all the data updates we haven't done during COVID yeah. because we just we were just too busy. Um, so we want to keep maintaining all of the stuff about COVID, about monkeypox, but we also want to work on making OID more evergreen. Mm. So that means that for the first few, year, few years of its existence, a lot of OID stuff was basically blog posts that were published without really thinking about how they were going to be updated and whether they were going to be updated. And now we have the opposite approach where any piece of information we publish, we directly think, okay, what is going to be the system that makes sure that next year or whenever new data is available, we update that piece of information and we update the graph behind it to make sure that people have something that is evergreen. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it means that it means changing a lot of the way we work. It means that compared to a few years ago, the data team has a lot more importance compared to the research team that produces articles. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the, re the data team uh, that I managed used to not exist before COVID. It was just the, the devs doing the website and the, research, the researchers writing articles. And now we have this idea of a data team right. that is directly a team responsible for uh, in like ingesting data, analyzing data, and also producing data as an output. Mm -hmm. So it's this idea that the output that people are interested in are not just articles, but also kind of raw data sometimes through the form of like data explorers or charts. And that we don't always need to write text to go alongside these charts. Yeah. And then I think that also coming along with that uh, is this idea that we mentioned of writing more about specific topics that we think are interesting and that we haven't really written about yet. Uh, so thing like, the history of pandemics, for example, is something we want to be writing about. Pandemic preparedness. Uh, AI is an obvious one I mentioned where there's a bunch of topics like that where 
there are there are less obvious candidates for the the world's pressing problems from a sort of like broad point of view. So we've dealt with climate change and poverty and many things like that in the first few years of Owen. And now it's probably time for us to try and tackle these slightly more obscure topics. Maybe not obscure for EA people, but at least way more obscure yeah. for people outside of EA. Awesome. Okay, home stretch. Let's ask some final questions. First one is um, related to all this chat about careers. Is Owen hiring? Uh, so currently we don't have any particular application on the website, but, uh, I would advise that people, if they're interested in, first of all, look at the open application form we have. Mm -hmm. Um, it is the case that because we're looking at, we're looking for people so specific, as I described people mm -hmm. with research background, but also specific skills. We're kind of always interested to hear from people who know our work really well, think they could add something to it and are just very interested in working with us. Um, and so I think we, we, it, it is important to know that we welcome applications generally, even when we're not actively, um, showing something, uh, and beyond that, it is the case that within the next few months, we'll most likely hire at, at least one more person for the data team and uh, to help us with, uh, data updates and data science. Awesome. And that's awardanddata.org forward slash jobs. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, uh, so yeah, there's the website that you can monitor, but also, uh, social media. So Twitter. LinkedIn of our world and data, uh, and also the ATK job board where we always publish our, our jobs. Fantastic. Let's uh, get to the questions which we like to ask uh, all of our guests at the end. Uh, one of these is, uh, what are three recommendations, books, films, websites, other bits of media uh, that you would recommend to anyone who wants to learn more about what we talked about here? Yeah, so I'm going to go with uh, recommendations that feel very like not original to me, <laughs> but probably are the best ones if people are kind of like discovering these topics for the first few, for the first time. Seminal um, recommendations. Yeah. Uh, so especially the first two. So the first one is Nate Silver's book, uh, the, Sig the signal and the noise. Um, it's a book I read probably 10 years ago now, uh, and Oof. I've read it a bunch of times since. And I think it is, if you're discovering all this and like the world of data and the world of statistics and evidence-based analysis and all that. Um, I think it is the best 300 page book that you can read on all of this. Um, and it's very well written mm. and it has a bunch of very interesting examples and I would definitely advise uh, people to read it. Um, I think then another kind of obvious choice, but less on the data side, but more on the OWID worldview kind of, uh, thing is Factfulness by Hans Rosling and his family. Um, it's this idea of like, I, I think if, if Owid was a book, that would be the book. Uh, <laughs> and that's what a lot of people think when they, when they read the book and we, we collaborate, uh, with Gapminder and people, yeah. uh, at Gapminder very frequently because we, we do essentially a lot of similar work and we have the same worldview about wanting people to understand the world as it is through data. Um, and so I think factfulness is a very good book to, to look into that and to learn more about how the world works, but also how we should think about learning about how the world works. And finally, uh, a third book is uh, much more recently, it will, it's a book about the history of measurements called Beyond Measure uh, by James Vincent, who's a reporter at The Verge. And he published uh, that book, Beyond Measure, I think in June, uh, so very recently. And I think it's a very good book that goes through the history, not only of measurements, so like in the sense of like distance measurement and like weight, but also things like how do we measure deaths? How do we measure mm -hmm. poverty and things like this? And I think it's an extremely interesting book that kind of tells you more about the trade-offs that we've been 
that we've made through time and space uh, to measure uh, to measure to measure things uh, and what are the problems that also come with this. And I think if people were interested in kind of the thoughtful trade-offs that I mentioned earlier, uh, that would be a very interesting book to to read. Uh, and actually, a more meta recommendation I would give uh, would be a website that I really like called fivebooks.com. Um, so Five Books is a website that I actually worked for for a couple of years at some point. Uh, I did a few interviews for them. Um, and I think it's something that might really be interesting to people listening to to this podcast who like what you recently, I think, uh, called cluster reading, which mm-hmm. is this idea of like, choosing a specific topic and instead of just like reading one book and then going to another topic, like reading a bunch of books about it with slightly different angles and then getting out of this process with like a very thorough understanding of the different viewpoints about that topic. And Five Books is an entire website based on this idea where um, they choose a topic like, I don't know, quantum physics, and then they will find an expert on quantum physics and ask them to choose the five best books about quantum physics. And then they write a very, very long interview where they talk about the books, they talk about the topic, they talk about that person. Yeah. And even the interview itself is sometimes a great way to, to learn about the topic. Uh, and so, yeah, so I think five books is very interesting. There's a bunch of uh, interviews there about X risks that I did about um, effective altruism uh, with Will McCaskill. And so I think I think it's really an interesting website that people should should read. Yeah, big plus one, actually. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, yeah, like five books. I think it's a great website. Yeah, plus two. Um, next question is, is there any research or work that you'd be especially excited to see people listening to this um, maybe get started on or even help OEDs do? A big one I mentioned is mental health, where I think there's a lot of opportunity to do more systematic and broader data collection on the topic. And I think my understanding is that it would be very useful for the field and for the for the knowledge about the issue. I think another one I haven't mentioned yet is uh, philanthropy, where mm-hmm. it's been a recurrent idea that people have suggested to us that somebody, and I very much agree, somebody should build a database of philanthropy and philanthropic giving over time. Uh, like going back centuries, if possible, yeah, if, yeah. That, if, that's, if that's ever possible, but obviously focusing more on the, la- on, on the last few decades. Something also that would include current giving, like by various institutions, and something that would obviously include proper tagging of different like categories of giving. Um, maybe is it considered to be an effective cause or not? Is it more like for global health? Uh, is it more for development? Is it for like arts and or science or education? And I think that's something that like on the whole would give a very good sense of how things are evolving through time. I think it would also give uh, effective altruists a sense of like, are we generally achieving the idea of moving more money towards effective causes or uh, is everything we're doing still just a, a drop in the bucket? Um, so I think that would be extremely useful. And it's something that is, at least for the current landscape of giving, it's quite doable because most of these foundations, they actually publish the data. It's just that they do it in slightly different ways with slightly different formats of tables. And so it just kind of needs somebody or someone's attention and someone's time to kind of scrape all of this data into a common format and then some kind of either automated or manual labeling to get a sense of like what are the different categories of giving. Strongly agree. I think history of philanthropy seems especially underexplored. And then even in the present day, trying to get a sense of who are the big players in philanthropy, where is the, the money going? Are people, for instance, living up to their giving pledges, especially very big donors? 
I've tried to figure this out and it's just like really hard to get a sense because no one's trying to aggregate this yeah. information. It's extremely difficult. And as far as I know, no one has really given this any, any kind of like legitimate yeah. effort. Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing to plug out, I don't think they've done it in a like data or like quantitative sense, but is like histfil is I think like mm, the website. Yeah, it's very good. Um, yeah. With, which is like looking to like a bunch of like case studies around like philanthropy. And I think the person uh, running it, uh, Benjamin Soskis, um, I think, yeah, is maybe like a great person to reach out to on this. Forbes have a philanthropy score as well as part of their list, but I don't know how they work it out. Um, so I think also things like things like just billionaire impact ranking lists where you're just like comparing how much of their net worth they've committed to giving to impactful causes. Yeah, that's very interesting. I, I think I think somebody, I can't remember who it was exactly, but I remember somebody a few months ago on Twitter throwing around the idea of like building a, yeah, an yeah. index of like the coolness of different philanthropists and... Yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay. Very last question is where can people find you online? Mostly Twitter. Uh, Twitter is where I spend a lot of time and probably should spend less time. <laughs> uh, so yeah, my account is uh, Redwood, so R-E-D-O-U-A-D, or just typing my name, and we'll get you there. And it's, it's the place where I publish all of the stuff I do for World in Data and also uh, different things about uh, effective altruism and, and things like that. All right, as Mathieu, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Edouard Mathieu on Our World in Data. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up and there's a link in the show notes. There you'll find links to all the books, sites, and OWID charts that Ed mentioned, plus a full transcript of the conversation. If you find this podcast valuable in some way, one of the most effective ways to help it uh, is just to write a review wherever you're listening to this. So Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever. Uh, and you can also follow us on Twitter. We are just at Hear This Idea. Um, if you have any more detailed feedback, then we have a new feedback form with a bunch of questions and a free book at the end as a thank you. It should only take 10 or 15 minutes to fill out and you can choose a book from a decently big selection of books we think you'd enjoy if you're into the kind of topics we talk about on the podcast. And you can find a link to that uh, on our homepage and also at feedback.hearthisidea.com forward slash listener. Okay, a big thanks to our producer Jason for editing these episodes and to Claudia and Alfie for writing full transcripts. And thank you very much for listening.